Josh, what's going on with you, bud? Um, I tore something in my shoulder, so that's been real fun. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like, no. When did that happen? Um, I think on the way back from Chicago. I don't know what I was doing, but something got fucked up, and now it's like raising my arm above about this point is real painful. I wouldn't Ooh, recommend that it. That sucks. Yeah. You don't remember injuring yourself? No, that's frequently how it happens. Like, I'll have bruises or, like, I broke my toe a couple years ago. Um, and I didn't realize at the time until I went to the doctor. And they were like, oh, yeah, you totally broke this. And then it, you let it heal badly. And now your toe's at the wrong angle. Things like that. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I I think my... <laughs> are you are you Mike Berbiglia? I might be, yeah. Just out there sleepwalking and, like, getting into all sorts of trouble? I very well could be. I mean, I, I would suspect someone in the house would notice at a certain point, but maybe they're all sleeping too deeply. Oh, man, you're definitely the Amityville Horror Dad. If you're up walking <laughs> oh, around no. the house, oh, creeping no. around in the middle of the night, and none <laughs> of your family knows you're up. <laughs> all right, you guys ready to get this uh, get this thing started? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let me drink some water. Okay, here we go. The magic is about to begin. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Nashville CA. This is your double feature, double weekly podcast brought to you by one guy from Nashville and another guy from California. I am the California half. My name is Sean, and joined with, by me, fuck, fuck, (laughs) joined with me as, oh, oh no, Josh, hi. (laughs) Hey, Sean, how you doing? Not good. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it felt good. It felt good, but the train was moving too fast and the brain couldn't catch up to the mouth and it all fell apart. You had a, a slight derailment there. I did. I did. Um, I got no transition now. <laughs> okay, great. Why don't you just uh, introduce our guest and go from there? You do it. You just started it. Just do it. Oh, no. Sean, you know, look at my face. I'm getting oh. all red again. Oh, God. <laughs> my glasses uh, are We're joined by up. our friend Greg. <laughs> this week, we have a very special guest. It's our friend Greg from the weekly podcast, Massacre. Hello, Greg. How's it going? Hello, Sean. Hello, Josh. Thank you guys for having me. It's going great. Uh, tipping the scale is a little in favor of California this week on the show. <laughs> true, true. I know. You're our yeah. L.A. contingency. I mean, you're our first Hollywood co- correspondent we've ever had on the show. Oh, yeah. Neat, yeah. Uh, deep in the heart of Hollywood here. Um, it's like I got all the hot goss for you guys. Definitely. <laughs> oh, did I just see De Niro walk behind you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's my cat, actually, fighting a oh, toy okay. in the bed back there. You see him wrestling. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Greg, you brought to us the movie Drug War from 2012, directed by Johnny toe johnny two yes how do you, I, don't uh, know how to say I say toe um or i say I, I, I believe it was pronounced toe yeah okay and why did you choose this movie <laughs> purely to look cool to you guys um i wanted to pick a fun uh genre movie that maybe um i i t- my, my podcast is a horror podcast clearly from the title and um so i don't get a chance to talk a lot about movies outside of that genre on podcast so i knew i wanted to go um action 
uh, because that's the other genre that's near and dear to my heart. And as I was just kind of looking through my letterbox list of <laughs> stuff I've rated highly, I, I saw Drug War and I was like, oh, Drug War's cool. I don't think a lot of people have seen it being um, like a mainland China film. And uh, I, I first watched it when I was in a college class, an international cinema class that was focused entirely on Chinese films. And um, it was that was a great class. It showed me a lot of you know movies I probably otherwise would not have seen. And uh, Drug War is just one that stuck with me. And I I'd watched it a few years since, and it to me it holds up and is always a really fun, entertaining watch um, that I think is an interesting, subversive action movie. So I, I thought it felt right for you know for this podcast. Do you like sports movies? Oh man, uh, that yes, I do like sports movies. I I've been getting into baseball movies in the past couple of years. I didn't watch a lot yeah. of them <laughs> uh, growing up. So my like, trifecta, I realized I, I I really whittled down what my movie trifecta is, and it's horror, sports, and action. And those <laughs> those are just like my Mount Rushmore. And so um, I think you and I are soulmates. Yes, yeah. So do you like uh, the speaking of Robert De Niro? Do you like the fan, which to me is a blend of all three? It's a <laughs> a sports horror action I, film. I like the fan in opposition of itself. I think yeah. the fan is a good bad movie. I absolutely but, agree. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. the The Hans Zimmer score with the sense, but then at the very end, Michelle, whatever that person's <laughs> name is, they do this big old part where it's like we're this high mountain over the credits and it's amazing and so it just like i leave that movie like soaring through the sky even though it's like so dumb um so i love it i love tony scott cocaine movies the last boy scout oh yes i love the last but it's another one that has that that great sports bent to it for sure he was in a sports mood in the 90s absolutely Josh, have you seen these? Uh, I've seen The Fan. I've also seen Dare Fan, uh, which I don't know if anyone has seen the the German movie. That's uh, absolutely horrifying. We watched it during a, a horror marathon over here uh, in Nashville. I do have Nashville friends, which I could use to build up the Nashville contingency, uh, even though one of them <laughs> recently moved to Florida, which I feel like is a betrayal. Former guest, right? Former guest, Andrew Ford. Working for the Atlanta Man, Braves we lost uh, organization one. now. We lost one to Florida. Mm-hmm. Pour one out. <laughs> 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 I've never seen Durfan. What is Durfan? Durfan is about a, uh, a young girl who is obsessed with uh, a new wave pop singer. And he invites her back home and everything goes downhill from there. Uh, it's, it's a German film. So just, you know, that could get your wheels cranking on that. Uh, it's very, very okay. dark. And was hard candy a response to this movie and kind of taking things the other way? No, it, it feels like it might be the American version of it. Okay. I yeah. gotcha. Hard Candy was a good movie. It's mm-hmm. fucked up, but Patrick Wilson's great in it. You you just like Patrick Wilson, I think. I do and I don't. Sometimes he plays it to every man. He's yeah. just like too straight for me, and I need a little something out of him. And also, 
those Conjuring sequels, man, I, I don't get me started on. Oh them. boy, uh, especially the third one. <laughs> the third one, I I was angry about it. I haven't seen the the third one yet, but I I am always thinking about not in a good way the scene where he sings Elvis of the kids and oh yes two. yeah uh that scene is just baffling <laughs> in the middle of that of this horror movie you have this really it's creepier than any of the ghost stuff that happens in it <laughs> <laughs> just ed and lorraine warren are con artists oh yeah and the fact that those movies put them up on a pedestal and also are so self-serious about it. Mm -hmm. Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson are just ah, so dull. And then, then people want to like make it about their love story and relationship to, I don't know. I'm, I'm so checked out. They, on that. they turned them into Catholic superheroes, which is really bizarre. Which is <laughs> uh, like my worst nightmare. Yeah. We, we talked about, <laughs> we recently, have, we've recorded an episode for the conjuring, not conjuring Two, uh, Amityville Two. Um, mm which is only tangential related to the Warrens because of the Amityville connection. But like, uh, we ended up talking a lot of shit about the Warrens on that episode too. Um, and how much they, they suck as people. Yeah. They were terrible. I think one of my least favorite devices in movies or horror movies, it happens in one of the Rex sequels is where like Catholicism saves the day. Right? A priest yeah. starts reciting a Bible verse and all the demons like, are quelled and become peaceful uh, anything like that just drives yes. me up the wall yeah <laughs> uh speaking of driving up the wall this movie drug war starts with a man driving over a wall and straight into a grocery <laughs> store front what's going on here um so this is, yeah we're introduced to our main character here uh i didn't quite i didn't get many names in this i have a lot of uh descriptors pet names for these guys this guy sure. started as cook yeah this is uh timmy Choi, played by lewis Koo. um and i i don't i do my best with pronunciations but um yeah calling him i was calling him timmy throughout i was also even though i've seen this several times of course not <laughs> not yeah. speaking the language i still do have some trouble with the names as well so uh and I so josh what did him. you think not only of this Oh, sorry. I think we have a bit of a delay here, Josh, between Do you we? and me. Oh, no. You you seem... I feel like we might. Okay. Just because you're talking over me? Or do you just want to talk over me? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the thing. I don't want to talk over anyone. We'll see. We'll play, we'll play through it. Okay. I'll edit through the shit. But, um... Go ahead, Josh. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I recognize Louis Koo from another Johnny Toe film that I watched recently, which was Throwdown. Um, oh, which, wow. oh yeah, see, yeah. I, uh, I, like I said, I saw this in that college class. I, I absolutely loved it. Um, the professor gave us a giant list of other Johnny Toe films to watch. I have not seen a single other one. <laughs> I've only seen Drug War four times, but um, yeah, I know he he's done like what something like ten movies with Louis Koo. Yeah, it's like his guy, and he's uh, it's wild because Throwdown is a very it's also kind of action oriented, but it's a super warm. It's like, it's like a brotherly hug of a movie, especially compared <laughs> to this, which feels cold and Michael Mannish, uh, which is awesome too. I, I love both of them in different ways. This does feel Michael Mannish of it also with the, the multiple puzzle pieces that it follows where you have the one cop team following that, that truck that's being driven by the two 
ridiculous stoner guys. <laughs> and then you have uh, the undercover part of it, and then the cartel part of it. it th- there's a lot of moving pieces here, and I, it really kept me on my toes. It was really fun to watch as it unfolded. Yeah, I think a big reason why I I picked this is because like I I Sean, I knew you were a, a action fan, and this to me, uh, it takes a lot of the boxes of like that classic, you know, masculine code crime thriller movie. Um, but it does something different with them where it, it, it's like, it's got these elements to it that you'd expect, like with the undercover cop, it, it has a lot of the same beats as other undercover movies. Um, but it kind of is like, it's got that cold detachment to it that like, even when I think of like heat, I think of that kind of macho brotherly love between, uh, Al Pacino and De Niro, which is completely absent in this movie. There's like a distinct lack of emotions between these players in this uh in this like cops versus criminals game i liked that this movie wasn't melodramatic though because he's only undercover for 72 hours or something so it's not like he's investing himself in losing his identity and it's wreaking havoc on his family <laughs> life and we see like his broken home and all that stuff no he's just he's out there pretending to be haha Okay, I mean, haha, as a character, it is one of the most ludicrous characters I've seen in a movie <laughs> in a long time. He's such a funny character in a movie that does not have jokes otherwise. <laughs> There's no other humor aside from haha. But then it's hilarious that the cop has to recreate that performance, which is so over the top and so preposterous. Yeah, and he nails it. He does a fantastic job. Josh, what you got? Uh, I had, I mean, right off the top, I called Timmy car crash for half my notes. Uh, and <laughs> even though I realized like early on after they catch him, they point out his name is Timmy. Uh, he was still car crash to me. So this, the explosion that starts this movie, that's not seen, uh, that kills Timmy's wife and her brother's, was that just an incidental meth lab explosion, or was that was yeah. it implied that there was nefarious? Okay, it was. Just, to me, it seems completely incidental. They... It's just a facet, a risk you take <laughs> manufacturing meth. Yeah, I like that the cop was able to smell his hand in the hospital when he's in the hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And be like, oh, he's he's a drug maker. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a uh, uh, Captain Zhang played by Sung Hung Lee, I think is how you pronounce his name. And he is like the star of the show. I think Louis Koo is great in this, but like I I am so impressed with every scene and every move Captain Chong makes in this. Like he is such like a that uh it's like you mentioned that the, that lack of melodrama. He is like, you know, like Al Pacino would heat. He's this cop who's been on it on this for many years and is like, you know, deeply entrenched in this but he does he has no qualms of what he does he's just a machine like he just he knows what has to be done and he does it with like a brutal efficiency get that vibe too from his uh his female partner who's with yeah. him it's just these people are so precise about the operations that they run and how many times they've done this that it's not a big deal for them to just jump straight into these characters and these undercover roles and just dive straight headfirst into these CD underworld. Sean, did you appreciate the fact that uh, all of the women 
in this were were police officers, uh, basically. Like, there's no no female stuff that you had to go around and cut out to make your man cut. <laughs> oh god, no, because I wanted to see a like a badass woman as one of the drug smugglers because, as we'll see in the raid too. Badass women can bring a lot to the screen. Oh, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I think I think one of the drug lords is female at the end, like one of the council that they kind of like unearth. Um, I believe there's a female drug dealer there, and then I think there's the deaf women too with the mute oh, brothers yeah. later. Oh, right, the yeah. mute brothers. But they don't have a lot of screen time. It is more focused on the men in this. <laughs> um, I like it in the hospital as uh, the guy is. Um, Timmy starts to escape and he's so everyone's so cool in this movie nobody panics so Timmy like his whole escape he reminds me of De Niro when he's stealing the ambulance at the beginning of Heat of just slowly making his way through this hospital uh, in disguise in character but that moment where they he and the cop uh, meet eye to eye and they just kind of have this moment where they both look at each other and and I, I wasn't sure with this movie I was like all right is this movie going to be an all-out shooter? Is this going to be a hand-to-hand fighter? And then it's a foot chase movie. I'm like, okay, it's that kind of movie. Oh, yeah. That's a wonderful foot chase movie. A lot of... Um, it, yeah, this, this movie is like a tick... It's like a ticking clock. Like It's all coming down to... You know, it's building up to these great set pieces later on in the movie. Uh, but to me, what really gets me, like the, a lot of, where all the tension comes from is like the overall idea that... <laughs> In China, the, the punishment for doing this, this type of drug smuggling and like drug manufacturing is the capital punishment. It, you, you're put to death by lethal injection. And so that's the tension over the course of the entire film, because you know like that's what is going to happen to Timmy if he's not successful in his you know, ratting out of the entire organization. Um, and that's what makes this movie kind of unique to me. Uh, as far as I can tell, and from what I remember in my Chinese cinema class, it being talked about is uh it's this is johnny toe's like first mainland china action film he made movies in hong kong before this and from what i understand censorship laws in mainland china are stricter and you have to depict criminals as like scumbags you when you have you're doing a movie like this you can't have that sort of um you know oh is who's really the bad guy here is it the cops or the criminals but this movie manages to still have a nuanced depiction of all its characters, like good and bad on both sides, in spite of this idea that you have to make the criminals look like horrible, horrible, horrible people. The cops, to me, come off as just as bad in this film. Um, and that's the central part of it, is like the extreme uh, punishment for their crimes. So on that note, just talking more about closer to the end of the movie, but do you think that's why this movie can't have Johnny or Timmy and the cops work together and then give him a reduced sentence at the end? Timmy yes. has to like it's a. Do you think that's a state reason? That, like Timmy is the villain in the end, so he has to turn on them because we have to show that the state is still the authority. Like what? Do, what's your take on the ending? Could they have ended this movie? in a more like amicable way between the cop and Timmy. I, I was reading that yeah, there was an alternate ending where Timmy got away. But I think um 
Johnny Toe decided to not use it because I think he knew it would never pass, that they would not allow that ending. And I think the dark, the darker ending of this like feeds into I, one. I think it makes it past the censorship laws, and then two, I think it is a statement on itself too that like um, there is no other way this could have ended. That like yeah, the state will always win, but that's not necessarily painting it as a good thing. It's it's like passing the laws, but it's like doing it in a somewhat sarcastic way. I'm like, yeah, happy ending, right? <laughs> the bad guys got their due. Uh, that is certainly true, you know, but it's just, uh, it's, it's also pointing out the harshness of that and like the brutality. I think, Josh, when's the last time you saw a movie that has an ending quite like this? I don't know. Like my note at the end of this was it's brutal. Like I thought, uh, even if the state does win, the cops themselves lose the individuals really, I mean, they all lose their lives at the end or they lose their, their brother cops. Like it, the ending of this was just savage and everybody gets reduced. And the fact that not every shot was a kill shot in that final shootout means that people get shot multiple times (laughs) before they go down. (laughs) And it was just so rough to watch, but kind of in the best thrilling, tense sort of way. The the existential dread of the very end of this movie left like a lingering effect with me for a few minutes after it was over. I mean, this yeah, movie definitely. top to bottom was so tense though. I mean, I that's my notes over and over again for each interaction that um, Captain Zhang has as HaHa, each time you're worried that he's going to get found out or that their their wiretaps and their cameras are going to get found each time. And it feels like um, there's a couple scenes in The Departed that kind of match the same energy, but this sustained it for almost the whole running time. I feel like an American movie would insert a few action scenes through the first and second acts of this movie to kind of, as like a pressure valve almost to release that pressure. But this movie, it just keeps slowly building and building. And then you get like the tension of the scene where he uh, he's forced to do lines. That was one of the more tense scenes in a movie I've seen in a while again. And it's just because of the hour of buildup leading up to that moment. And they they gave him his fake Coke or whatever, and they think they're smart. And now it's it's just like it's a moment where he has to do this. And you see the repercussions as he's potentially ODing. And then you get like the Jacob's Ladder bath scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's just crazy movie, dude. It, it really went ways that I don't think most American movies would go. It's, yeah, I really totally. feel like the um, that push and pull between the extreme uh, high-tech nature of the cops, but also you have like kind of the street-level smarts of, of the drug dealers working against them, um, but you also have the drug dealers with all this money, and they have all of these human resources where the people kind of keep coming and going as opposed to the cops. Like you get to know 
the small cadre of cops that is on this case. And, you know, you get a little bit of insight into each of them, I feel like, through their actions. Um, and there was a great shot where they are, um, they're mourning the passing of Timmy's uh, wife and they, they're burning the money at the same time that the cops are trying to scrounge up gas money so that they can tail the bad guys. And it's like, there's a shot <laughs> on the screen behind them, like handing over like $15 of just hundred dollar bills burning in this, in this can. And you get like the total difference between the lifestyles of these two uh, extreme people. Yeah, I love that that tribute scene because like that is the most emotional this movie gets is that moment when things are allowed to slow down and Timmy for the very first time talks about the death of his his family. And um it's interesting we talked I, I we mentioned already but that lack of melodrama it hits it really did stand out to me this time. There's a line right in the beginning too uh cuz it kind of opens when we meet Captain Zhang he's like he's doing he's performing a bust at this traffic stop. And uh, the guy that he busts is um, <laughs> is like expelling drugs from his body later on. And he's talking to Song and he says, you betrayed me. And Zhang's response is, I didn't betray you. I busted you. And uh, I when I think you mentioned The Departed, too, and I think about like the melodrama, which I love The Departed and I love the Chinese original, too. But those movies are so caught up in like people getting emotionally attached to their jobs, like getting into deep emotionally. And here we have a character that is able to just, like, turn that switch on, turn it off. Like, he's embedding himself in this world, but he's able to instantly come out of it with no emotional attachments and put these people to death. Like, he knows what he's doing, and he knows the results that he, and he knows where he's sending these people when he busts them. But there's still just that cold emotionality to it. And then we have the scene where the criminals are the ones being more you know, emotional and actually taking a moment there to like sit and remember the dead and, and burn money. Like the thing you wouldn't expect criminals to do to, to take all this that they've earned and realize like, you know, we, uh, this is a, you know, this is a greater cause, like remembering these people. Yeah. And it, it goes to show this team and this warehouse, Timmy and the, the mute brothers They're They're a, a tiny little family. It, yeah. It's a weird family. But they're very close and they're like emotionally supportive. And when they have that meal and drinking sake, and I thought Timmy's acting in the scene was really good as he's, you know, got tears rolling down his face. And but he's still, it's the struggle of he his grief, but also still being in complete business mode of just because that happened doesn't mean I can just stop. I have to keep working. Yeah, and it's like his one moment of self-reflection, too, where he realizes, oh, I immediately sold these guys out when I was in prison. Like, one of the first things he says when he gets caught is, I have two apprentices, I will give them up, and everyone else, and Brother Lee, and, and Ha Ha, and everyone, they're all on the chopping block because I want to survive. I thought that was Did awesome. Did this movie... Oh, sorry, Josh. I was gonna say, I thought that Go was ahead. awesome, the fact that he um, starts out as kind of a weaselly character and then through all of his actions like you start to respect him and then his turn in that last act where he you know breaks the uh, the monitoring device that the cops have planted on him and goes against the cops and tries to warn all of the smugglers again um and then like 
you kind of respect him for sticking to a code. At least like he's he's picked a family, he's picked a side, and he's going through with this major action. And then at the very end, he's a weasel again. He's trying to sell out <laughs> everybody to protect his own ass. A mid-action scene, I got, he flips again when he throws yes. his hands up and he runs out to the cops in the middle of the street and it's just like, I'm giving up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he cannot stop switching sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, this, but this guy hooked me. I, I got hooked and baited a few times where I thought, all right, he, he's giving it up and he's going to work with the cop. And then I was like, oh, no, he's actually double-crossing the cops and he's still loyal to his family. Oh, no, Timmy only cares about himself in the end. And that's basically <laughs> like, his whole thing is just this one dude's survival. And in the end, he doesn't give a shit about anyone else. Yeah, and that's a, it's just, I mean, it really stands out to me compared to other crime thrillers where they make such a big point about loyalty and, like, the inner turmoil, like, turmoil that causes in people. But it really is, like, Timmy has these, these arguments with himself for all of five minutes and then is able to switch sides and betray people and throw people under, under the bus, including his own, his godfather and his brother, like, the people closest to him. Uh, it doesn't matter. He's gonna you know, orchestrate to get them killed by the state, essentially. He killed Uncle Bill. Yeah. <laughs> this is our second Uncle Bill, Josh. Oh, yeah. This this one is not nearly as uh, insightful as our previous Uncle Bill, though. Who is the previous Uncle Bill? Have you seen American Movie, the documentary? Oh, yes. Oh, Uncle, that Uncle Bill. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> now, these, <laughs> this Uncle Bill could not be more different. <laughs> Josh and I still talk about American movie, I'd say, once every five episodes or so. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's come up in the ones I've listened to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, with, with good reason. That movie's incredible. The whole, the whole transaction at the, the intersection where everyone's stuck in traffic, and there's like four different vans, and there's people running back and forth from the vans with briefcases full of money and drugs and Uncle Bill's in one car. I get, it's, I would never think to do a drug transaction stuck at a red light, but it was yeah. really fun to watch. <laughs> That's the thing. I just think, yeah, there's such... Int- every setup in this is so intricate, the way that it's all so like laid out geographically, too. Like I love during the uh, the club scene when you have all of the drug smugglers down in the in the main floor of the club with the meeting with Uncle Bill going on upstairs and the way they're cutting between these two areas as that deal is kind of going awry and the cops manage to kind of like you know uh, to smoke out the uh, the drug ring like I just think it's really well done and then yeah cutting between the different vans and the traffic stops like he Johnny t- he really does managed to use like the the geography of these to maximize tension i was never confused as to where something was happening um i feel like unless you're supposed to be for a little surprise or something to happen but for the most part it's just um it just flows so well and there's so much intercutting between uh the cops and the smugglers at their different points of their hierarchy. Uh, and then it gets really intense towards the end in that last shootout. And especially once Timmy gets um, handcuffed to the car and he uses the Timmy trying to break his own hand to get out of the handcuffs oh, man. as yeah. like, as like punctuations 
on the rest of the action. It's like as something else happens, you cut back to that and you just get a few frames of him <laughs> slamming that car door. And it's so intense. Like my teeth were gritting the whole time. Yeah, that's there's like there's a lot of great things happening all at once there, because that's also the same moment where Zhang is standing in the trunk of a car using like the trunk as a shield driving at the two mute brothers. Um, there's a lot of wild things happening all at the same time there. And yeah, you don't have trouble following any of it. And then he does punctuate all that with a great surprise where Chong handcuffs himself to Timmy. We don't see that happen on camera, mm-hmm. but you just look down and suddenly his corpse is hanging off of his, his ankle. <laughs> and it's such a fantastic the, reveal. The image of them in the trunk of the car with the lid up as a shield rolling down that highway is the image of the movie for me in yeah. my mind. Cause that was such like a, a wild West Roman chariot kind of <laughs> moment. That was just one of those, like such an insane badass thing that yes. I, I have, I've never seen that before. And that was so cool. And then, yeah. Um, and the end the- <laughs> when the cop, the cop handcuffs his dying body to a guy to act as a human anchor is just one of the most badass things I've seen in a long time. Yeah, it's very upsetting thinking about it, that in your last moments, like, your drive to win this, this the, the titular drug war is so great that, like, you're sacrificing your body like that, like, you know, as you're, as you're dying. Uh, yeah, I love that, that that car thing is so cool, and it fails spectacularly. Like the driver gets killed, Sean gets killed. It's like it does not pay. Oh off. no, it's terrible. Like it's not. <laughs> there's no glory in their bravado. It, it yeah. gets them all killed, and the SWAT team is like two minutes behind them. Yes, totally. Uh, speaking of the SWAT team, just the raid on the. That's the other big action set piece. I feel like is the raid on on the Mute Brothers warehouse, and how spectacularly that fails as well. Just uh, you have these heavily armored, you know, well-armed cops coming in and they cannot take these two deaf men who have this, this, you know, this uh, setup in this warehouse. I like the red light alarm system flashing. Yeah. The silent alarm for them. And then, um, yeah, when he steps out with that machine pistol and one dude immediately starts sledgehammering a hole through the floor. <laughs> I'm just, this is awesome. That's, I was going to say, we have not touched on the fact that the Mute Brothers are badasses and wind up basically being like the final boss characters, uh, even though, I mean, they're not introduced for a while into the movie, uh, actually as people we hear about them, and then they seem, they seem kind of daft, like they're always um, kind of bowing and uh, curtsying themselves to Timmy. Like he's their master and it seems like, oh, you know, he's going to save us and he's our good guy and everything. And then when it comes down to it, it's like, no, they get the job done. And uh, that whole sequence and they are moving in lockstep and the SWAT team, as soon as their ranks are broken, it are just uh, scattering in chaos. Like they're trying to get back to their formation, but you just see them like hiding wherever they can and the mute brothers know exactly they know the inside of their warehouse and they know exactly where to go and they're like that shot of the two of them staggered like kind of walking across and taking those guys out is just so cool 
<laughs> yeah. Today I... is a an episode about badass siblings. Oh, mm-hmm. seriously. Hammer Bo- or Hammer Girl and Baseball Boy in the second movie. Yeah, and whether or not a movie is, how melodramatic a movie is about going undercover. Because uh, I, I do think this, yeah, this is a really fun counterpoint to the other one. That was a really, really great pick, Sean, because there is a lot to say about this movie's lack of emotions. And then next movie's, like, the the uh, the melodrama that brings out in all of its, its various machinations. Um, oh, it's so much more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's that movie is like all heart and wounded men yes. and insecurity. <laughs> also, I also um I thought it was a cool counterpoint to pick the raid 2 to this because this is such a straightforward procedural until the third act and then it really like literally blows up. Um but I I thought it was cool to see a movie that was able to create a similar vibe of like tension and excitement without using violence. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. There's yeah, there's really I mean there's two big action scenes. There's the warehouse and then there's the final shootout in the street. And everything else is just these like Hitchcockian will we get discovered? There's like a hidden there's a secret in this room that we're trying not to let out and uh like will someone figure it out? Uh, I want to say too. I'm just realizing with that whole death, uh, the Mute Brothers, Mute Brothers action scene where they escape through the tunnel and they're asking because this almost gets Timmy killed, um, in spite of him literally saving Zhang's life by telling him how to deal with the overdose and everything. They're like, "Well, I mean, you probably betrayed us because they got away. There was a hidden tunnel, and Timmy says he didn't know about it." But I am just realizing he could know how badass these Mute Brothers are. And he might have known they're going to escape. They have contingencies. They have ways out of this. Um, and so it does make me think, like, was he just kind of working them to a place to get killed by the Mew brothers? Or did he, was, he generally, was he genuinely trying to turn them in and, and, you know, sacrificing them so he could live? Or does he not care because he's just out for himself and... Yeah, if everyone else well, kills each other, well, he's a man that uses children as shields. <laughs> Eventually, he gets to that place. Yeah, he goes full Sizemore. That's the other thing too, is that the fact that he sets up this last action scene to take place literally right in front of a school as mm-hmm. kids are getting out, and uh, he puts the cops in this position where it's like, okay, well, you want to kill all of us? Like, do it right here where these children can't see and are you know, going to be collateral. And they go through it anyway. They they have this full-on action shootout in front of the school with kids around. So, in a similar way to the, the shootout in Heat, it's it's on these cops. This is not the time to engage in exactly. full-out, like, military warfare in the streets. And their bravado costs, like, so many casualties. Uh, my dog is outside barking like crazy but he's he's with my mom i need to shut the window or something hold on one second. okay sure, sure. <laughs> greg what's on your your coffee mug i keep seeing you lift it into frame oh this is an action boys coffee mug oh nice figured. okay yes uh appropriate talk i'm about going to the bathroom okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> i've got um a central cinema sticker from austin Ooh, nice and then yeah. one of George's stickers on here. Oh, that's brilliant. 
I need to show up on my trustees podcast merch uh, and or a theater merch. I have uh, I have a shirt from Central Cinema. I love uh, so. Do, I mean, you're in Nashville. Do you go to Central Cinema? Have you been there? No, I haven't. I want to go when they do like an all nighter or uh, a mini marathon kind of thing. Yeah, um, so many things he posts about. I am so jealous of. Yeah, yes, it looks fantastic. It, and I'm bitter. They do cool events over there. Our yeah. uh, our local theater, which is great, the Belcourt, um, used to do more of those, but they've moved a lot of that stuff to midnight movies now. And I'm 43. That doesn't <laughs> those get yeah, those get harder and harder to go to. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we should get some stickers or something, Josh. We should uh, mail our I- guests a little care package. Ooh. Maybe like a bagel and a little bit of coffee or some, ooh, some of that hot sauce. <laughs> when you said coffee, I was picturing like a brewed cup of coffee that we, we just put in the mail with like a lid on top and hope for the best. That'd be amazing. Here's your soggy brown box, courtesy of Nashville CA. <laughs> the uh, early on, we didn't really address the fact that there is a busload of people who are all um, smuggling drugs. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Maria Full of Grace, which was about... I have. I was going to bring that up. Thank you for mentioning that. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's that whole movie, is the push and pull. And so I was immediately able to like put that onto all of these characters as they're, they're crying and the balloons start bursting in the one guy's rectum, I guess. Oh, man. That's yes. so sad. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. I mean, like, I talk about the nuance of this as portraying these cops as these, like, brutalist, like, state enforcers. But they also do show you a lot of, like, the horrors of the drug trade as well. Like, that moment when he starts collapsing and bleeding from his mouth mm-hmm. and everything. Uh <laughs> Full disclosure, I was watching this a little stoned, and I had the thought, like, man, drugs will fuck you up. Like, this is not <laughs> the right headspace to be watching this. <laughs> like, <laughs> this, is, this is some rough stuff. Um, that and then just uh, Zhang when he's overdosing and, like, mm-hmm. writhing on the ground, screaming about the bugs on his skin. Um, yeah, it doesn't hold back in, in like, showing you. Uh, it's, it's the aftermath of the explosion as well. That scene when he's... when he when they walk into the exploded drug lab and they see Timmy's wife dead on the floor, <laughs> it is absolutely, uh, you know, it's, it's savage the way that it's, it's depiction of like this drug trade. That's, uh, the creation of the drugs and everything made me think of breaking bad. Uh, mm-hmm. and the fact that breaking bad hardly ever shows you uh, with you know a couple notable exceptions, hardly shows you the results of the drugs at all. It's you you never deal with that street level part of it, or you know either the physical or mental corrosive action uh, that all of Walter White's machinations lead to for all these other people. Like they don't address the fact that he's ruining hundreds of lives each time he makes a batch. <laughs> that that is a good point because he's he largely seems to be able to wash his hands of the effect on a micro level on mm-hmm. the macro. Yes. I'm a drug dealer smuggling money and all sorts of shit, but it never talks about on the micro him 
being responsible for the death of, I'm sure, you know, hundreds of people over the course of that show, if not more. Yeah. Oh, just, yeah. Just through the product that he creates alone, let alone his actions. Yeah, they they do, like you said, Josh, there's notable exceptions. My favorite being, it's a, it was a huge swing to have him be indirectly responsible for two 747s colliding in midair and killing like 600 people they give you the count on it it's absolutely insane mm-hmm. and the fact that he, <laughs> the show continued after that for three more seasons without ever really topping that was pretty nuts that show uh, also tonight is the return of better call Saul. oh right right the final run the last six episodes and if it's anything like the end of breaking bad i'm going to have a pillow in my lap and I'm just going to be squeezing it in a bear hug of like tension and dread and just I I love Vince Gilligan so much and I listen yeah. to the Better Call Saul podcast which he does with his editors and art designers and music composers they have all sorts of different people from the show and it seems like such a tight knit cast and community and he seems like a really respectable non-asshole guy which is a pretty crazy thing i think for a showrunner to be these days yeah. um and i it's one of those times with a show where i love it so much that i i don't want it to start because then it'll be over <laughs> oh man <laughs> i'm not ready for these last six episodes i'm not ready to like send this show off yeah, embarrassingly, that is a show where I have watched the first season twice, um, mm-hmm. trying to get back into it, and I enjoy every second of it when I have watched it. And I, I watched a chunk of the second season as well, and was really into it. But I just find that I just have less and less um, like attention for TV shows nowadays, and I will drop shows in a second as soon as I find something else to watch or get interested in. I just have don't have the stamina to, to finish a, a series these days, it seems like. I have to really, really dedicate myself. But I, I hear nothing but praise for Better Call Saul. Uh, I also love Vince Gilligan, and I love uh, Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk is just the greatest, and so... Um, I have this problem, and it's also shows that hit me emotionally or impact me in a way, so I've I have about, I got to a, the point where I had about 10 episodes left in BoJack Horseman, and that was about <laughs> two years ago, and I never, I'm, I've now restarted the show again, and I'm like, this time I'm going to finish it. <laughs> That's, the Leftovers, yeah. I had two episodes left of The Leftovers, and I stopped, and that was two years ago, so now I'm trying to rewatch the last season, and I'm like, this time I'm going to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same. I'm in the same boat with Hannibal as well. I've watched the first two and a half seasons of Hannibal twice, and I cannot bring myself. I think I started the third season this last watch, but I cannot bring myself to ever finish it. And then that is such a complicated, heady, surreal show that it's like if I just jump back in, I would be so so lost. Even though I know I've seen all of this, and I feel oh like, Hannibal's constantly referencing back to the first yes. season. It, that show goes back on itself so many times. You really need to know it. That's. Yeah. I I burned through Hannibal very quickly. Um, I think towards the start of the pandemic, like that was one of our, hey, let's sit down and just watch TV show all <laughs> all day. Uh, and the Nick is my other one that I've watched like three times through now. Um, 
And you I keep mentioning the Nick as I, the perfect show. Yes. And I, I still have not even looked into it. I, I got to do it. <laughs> this is exactly why I keep doing it, though. Once you see it, uh, the curse will be broken and I won't be able to talk about it anymore, actually. That's what that's what will happen. <laughs> but what is that? I have the same thing uh, recently of it's hard to watch. Um, you know, 22 to 26 minutes of a show or, you know, 45 to 54 of an hour long. Right. Uh, but I can sit down and watch two hours of a movie. <laughs> I yeah, think it's, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's the movie gives you this complete package within that time frame. you know, mm-hmm. like thinking of drug war, like it hits on a lot of the same aspects that a lot of these, you know, kind of like, uh, prestigious crime dramas do but it's all within an hour and 40 minute package and like you still you get these complete character arcs and interesting set pieces and like really uh you know tense moments that you get in those shows too but those are are drug out to be much longer sagas and i don't know i i feel like personally just my brain likes that efficiency it's in it's out like i've seen it the entire thing <laughs> i don't have to spend several days or months in this world um, it's just right there in one package. See, I burn through TV shows if I get really into it sometimes. And so for shows like Barry or Better Call Saul, um, I've really been enjoying the fact that they they stuck to a weekly release schedule and they didn't switch to the Netflix yeah. dump them all. Because that way on Discord we can have continued conversation about each episode and really dive deep into the show and it also leaves me time to digest what just happened this episode and wait for the next one and just round out my thoughts about how I'm feeling about things as opposed to like Better Call Saul something shocking happens at the end of an episode and then immediately starting the next one on a completely (laughs) different note and tone because that show often does like fun montages to start episodes and things it would take away from the power and the hit that that had. Oh yeah, I feel I feel like that that binge model was uh, fully a detriment to to TV shows and maybe is what partly turned me off of like watching so many of these. Um is this like expectation to just get it all done immediately. Uh and then you move on with your life and then it's like, well, I barely even remember I've tuned out so much of what I saw now because it was so quick and it was so, you know, compressed into this small amount of time. When, yeah, you have to let these things breathe a little bit and it it helps too with like the cultural impact, I feel. Um, It is how I think like Game of Thrones strung out its hype so long despite like a clear decline in quality. (laughs) The fact that it was so you had to wait for the next one and you still had that time to talk about it still helped that show Whereas I think if it was all dumped at once, people would kind of realize it's maybe not as good and move on. Or but before you could even finish it, people would tell you that the ending sucked. Don't yes. bother. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Give it a shot. Instead, everybody had to watch the ending out of curiosity because it all was happening. Yeah, it's all happening week to week. I'm, I'm still annoyed by it. And now that HBO... It's just HBO is doing like what AMC did with The Walking Dead, where it's like, oh, people are into this. We just got to dump all our money and just yeah. make like five spinoffs of this. And then the fact that 
Game of Thrones ended on such a lackluster note that fans lost all motivation and passion for the show. I'm really curious now because now these spinoffs are coming with, I think, like such little hype and excitement, at least as far as I've seen, that I feel like HBO might have really shot themselves in the foot here, greenlighting things before their show was even done. Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I am. I do have a few coworkers that are pretty excited for this spinoff, which which surprises me because it's like I, I remember you guys <laughs> really hating the ending. Uh, but I think it, it's not the same showrunners, right? It's not Benioff and Weiss. So I hated the ending because I was one of those guys with Game of Thrones that would like rewatch the entire show right. before the next season premiere I, I, because I did the show that was so times, dense yeah. that I wanted to like. I wanted to get it, and I wanted to understand the nuance of these characters and everything. And then for it to just, like, all crumble apart in my hands, I was just like, God damn it, no, I put so much time into this. <laughs> oh, I read the books, too. I read the books, I, and I went back and re-listened to the audiobooks after reading them. I was all all in on this franchise that uh, likely would never be finished, right? I mean, I, I don't think there's ever any hope of the last two books coming ever coming out with mm-hmm. like a you know you know yeah so that's it all that time i poured into that franchise at one point in drug war a man eats a hard-boiled egg in the backseat of a car josh can you think <laughs> of a worse car food than a hard-boiled egg maybe like a bowl of soup uh i think cereal Cereals would be notoriously bad. Um, anything that's got that a lot of liquid, too. yeah, a lot of liquid component to it. Um, <laughs> uh, Have you seen the Sunny in Philadelphia episode where oh, yeah. Dennis drives around eating a bowl of cereal? That is why it came to mind. I immediately thought of him eating cereal while driving. Yes. <laughs> you hold it in one hand and drive with the other. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Pretty mind blown stuff, isn't it? Then I stop at a stoplight. And once I'm stopped and everything is safe, take a bite. Oh, God damn, that's so funny. <laughs> what about a, a, a durian? Oh, okay. I, I, yeah, I can see that. Or one of those, what's that, what's that Swedish fermented fish in a can? Yes. Um, or the fermented shark that they do that smells like urine. <laughs> Book right now and like all of every single natural disaster that could happen has happened. And money doesn't have much money or value now, but one guy just has like a shark fin factory and you can buy like a gigantic boat with 500 shark fins. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I know that right now um, on social media, I've been seeing Eli Roth, I think has, it's either a documentary or a series about like the shark hunting industry coming out. Like he's a very vocal, like proponent of not killing and hunting sharks and uh yeah it seems like he's doing some really interesting work right now in uh shark conservation have you guys seen open water oh yes Mm -hmm. yeah did not really care for a lot of it but it was interesting no but the ending of that movie this was not implied and i don't think this was what was what the director was trying to do but the ending of that movie shows sharks on the dock being gutted Mm -hmm. and then one of them has the camera in its stomach and for me i was taking that as like yeah we felt bad for these people but 
in like the movie vilified these sharks here, but then look at what we fucking do to them. And yeah. who's the real monster at the end of the day? That is not the intention of the movie, <laughs> but that was what I took away from it. And that's all that matters. Is that's like that's the conclusion. You I came hate to, that so. movie. I hate that movie because you can't make a movie based on a true story where nobody knows what happens, and then just say what happened. Like there's there's no evidence that those people were killed by sharks, but and then to make money off of that, and this falls back into my whole complicated relationship with true crime and turning that into entertainment and making money off of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Gorley and Russ talking about Jean Benet on their recent episode. I was just yeah. like, oh, this, why are, what are we doing here, guys? Come on now. That was one where I, I can sometimes get too, like, in, uh, wrapped up in true crime stuff. It's like a, it's a genre that I will sometimes dip my toe into and, like, I, there's some really interesting books and shows out there, but, like, I tried watching that John, but there's a casting John Bonet, I believe it's called that Netflix series. Like I got like 30 minutes into that, and I was like, "This is too heavy to me. This is too real. Like I can't uh, justify like spending all this time learning about this because it just is too sad of a story." Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't know if you watched the recent, uh, well, a couple years ago now, um, uh, Unsolved Mysteries reboot. Where it wasn't so no, much unsolved mysteries as uh, like lengthy. I think there was one story per episode, and it was just lengthy true crime stories, and it didn't have that same kind of uh, let's get in get in out quick from the story and kind of give you an overview and what happened. It was like a lot darker and felt a lot more exploitative to me in like this really kind of gross way. Um, and just reminded me why I don't like that stuff, even though, like you guys, I do get sucked into it. Like, sometimes it really will be, you know, like, listen to, I don't know, my favorite murder or last podcast on the left kind of stuff. Um, right. It's, you know, I get sucked in and I enjoy it. And then I feel bad about myself afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. Unsolved uh, Mysteries scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Oh, the yeah. intro song. And then I can't think of the guy's name. It's not Robert Patrick. It's something like that. The Robert host. Stack. His perf his performance was scary. And I the only episode I can remember, and I don't know why this is scary, but it terrified me as a kid. There was a man who, when he stood outside, he could like rub his fingers together and make it rain on him or something. And then he could also do it inside. And I don't know why, but that like scared the shit out of me. So to go from that kind of show to a show about, like, real murders and stuff, it's just, I think you lost the point. Speaking of lost, losing the point, we are way <laughs> off topic here. Uh, you guys have anything else that you want to uh, talk about here? I, I Again, this movie, like, the, the, the nihilism kind of at the end yeah. of this, that violence is just terrible and it, it takes everyone down and especially there's there's that one of the cartel leaders and i think his wife are sitting there and she gets shot and she dies trying to put her boot on oh and yeah. it was the death of such a such a basic action it, for something 
for some reason, that really shook me. I don't know why. It's yeah. One there's of those... there's some. Go ahead, Greg. Uh, no, I was I I was gonna talk about something else. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead, Josh. If you got something else, on the okay. Board. Yeah, I was gonna say like making it so small and real after you know you see like squibs all over the place and uh doors uh just riddled with bullets and everything you know the big action and then to like it reminds me of what um Guillermo del Toro will do a lot where it's you know he brings the pain into something really small and tiny uh there's a lot of hand damage in his things where it's like it's it's so relatable and i think that that's what makes it painful you know seeing somebody shot 15 times that's unfortunately becoming more and more common but it's not something that everybody can relate to but that kind of slow almost falling asleep sort of death feels so realistic and impactful that it's and the, he doesn't even show her like bleeding out you know there's no close ups on that or anything it's just it just happens and it's so it was very sad even though i don't know hardly know that character yeah, she's a real um, minor point, but like, and, and it's all happening at the same time. <laughs> We've talked about this with like the the car thing, uh, and that being intercut with him smashing the his hands to get out of the handcuffs. But that's all intercut with other major characters dying horribly in this shootout. And I think it's just before that when the female officer gets run over by the oh, car, God. which in oh, con- in contrast to be have such a quick. But it, it, it's fast the way it happens. But then have her then get backed over. It's so cruel and fast compared to like the, the kind of slow death she has putting the boot on or taking the boot off. Like uh, the fact that these are all happening at the same time and all landing with this impact is really wild to me. He can pull that off. Timmy hot wiring that bus and then pretending like he's going to give them all a ride to get out of there just to draw them out. And then bailing was such a dick move, but it kind of made me laugh because it's like, you are such a fucking rat, you piece of shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's I kept thinking about how much of a rat he is just the entire film. Uh, Even as he's being executed, he is still rattling off names and people he can give up. Um, Man, this ending with his lethal injection... uh, it was just so haunting, and yeah, that desp- that desperation in his voice, basically trying to uh, unleash his black book, like the Pandora's box of every yeah. single shady person he knows, and it's all for nothing. And, you know, I, I used to be, like, when I was younger in my teenager years and stuff, I was pro-capital punishment until I grew older, and did more research about it and the fact that, you know, innocent people have been put to death under it. It's just, yeah, the fact that we're still doing this, especially, I mean, in this case, he's an extremely violent drug offender, but the fact that they're doing this to all over the world still to nonviolent offenders, it's just really, really shocking to me. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it is crazy because it, this movie, like I said, it, it was made under some, you know, some strict censorship laws, and yet it still manages to come out criticizing the state and their practices, because you see how horrific his death is, 
And the fact that he is so willing to uh, do whatever he can to avoid it, it just goes to show it does not really work as a deterrent for violent action or violent crimes. Um, things get more violent because of his desperation to not have this happen because he knows what the punishment is. Um, what you said there is interesting that it seems to be a critique of the state and yet it's also the only ending that the state would allow. Exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah, and the fact, too, that he is being... I mean, it's the irony of him dying by lethal injection is that they're killing him with drugs, right? Like, that, you know... Oh, yeah. We can I, manufacture and even... do this, but only the state has the power to actually, like, use them. Yeah. Um, well, that's really good. I, I, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's very good. I I had to, I had fully admit I had read that in someone else's letterbox review. I cannot take credit for it, but I do think it is really <laughs> fascinating. And um, yeah, but uh, then it makes you think too. Like watching this, um, I've seen this a couple times. Of like something I thought about this time was when they bust Haha, which is such a small moment, kind of in the plot. Like uh, you know, the real Haha disappears for a while, and then they have a meeting with him later, where they finally bust him. But he's going to the same fate, like. He mm-hmm. is also taken, being taken off to be killed by lethal injection. And um, what he says to, to Louis Koo as he's being taken away is he's like, I will kill every single member of your family. And that landed this time because it's like, well, they're all already, already dead. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, I think that's an interesting motivator, when you, especially compared to the rape two, where we learn um, a lot of the motivations in that movie end up being family or like loved ones. Uh, and it's interesting what now Timmy is willing to do once he got, he has nothing to lose. Like there is that motivator is completely, is already gone. He's already lost his family due to his own actions, uh, you know, of like entering this drug trade. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like that, that ending and the lethal injection aspect, like cast a whole cloud over this film that, uh, adds a lot of, uh, like I think you mentioned earlier, Sean, a lot of existential dread that really lands at the end of it. Josh, do you have anything else for this movie? Um, I really enjoyed how it gets strung out each time the cops think that they're like going to get uh, uncle bill or they're going to actually catch him with the drugs. Each one of those steps, it leads them further away when they do the handoff in the in traffic and it's a box of cuban cigars instead of like a suitcase <laughs> full of heroin and he's like oh you have to come back later uh and when they do the thing at the shipyard where they send all of the boats out it's like it winds up not being enough to prove to his whole gang uh that they have control of the port and that's really haha um you know, talking about his, I own more than 70 boats. <laughs> I just love that detail. I did think, you know, movies do different ways for a gang member to, or a gang leader to show their power. Mm-hmm. And I thought that one was a cool way of just orchestrating the departure of all these boats. It was a very neat way to demonstrate that. Yeah. I, I love, um, they're a late introduction to the movie, but the council of drug smugglers that they like uh learned that you know uncle bills are front four i love how like bumbling they are because that whole thing of like oh move all the boats now it's not their plan that's like just the drugged up nephew of the fake 
Uncle Bill who just like yells it out and they're all like this <laughs> fucking druggy ruining things for us. And then when they are they later like um kind of order Uncle Bill and his nephew to be killed, but they're all like, No, 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 not here, we can't see, and they all have to like run out of the room like as this happens. Like they are just bumbling fools compared to like the the brutal efficiency of the police. Um I really like that distinction. Uh, I was going to ask, Greg, do you think about the logistics of putting these movies together? Um, oh, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I think that's a that's a big thing that really draws me towards um, action films in general is that like, uh, Sean, I know you're not a musical fan, but I am. But to, to me, it's a very similar thing. <laughs> We're no longer soulmates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. But I think this is a big reason I love action is that they are just manly musicals in the way you have to choreograph and oh, orchestrate. Oh no, Greg, what are you doing? These action scenes. I you're think ruining it's... my brain. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's so true where you have to have all these very distinctive moves and little pieces fit together in this grander scheme um and like that's called orchestrating these for a reason it, it is like very operatic uh one of my favorite films i mean I, i'm a massive massive brian duck palma fan and anytime i watch his movies i um the good ones anyway they always end up in a very like symphonic place to me mm-hmm. where it is like all these little pieces happening at once falling at just the right time to create this like grander scene um and uh yeah i think that this this movie it like all of it works together to create such a like an interesting piece um and like i said very subversive like i was like uh speaking of what's on my mug the action boys recently i watched dirty dozen for for that podcast and um they talk about how like that is a film that is coming out in the 60s and yet it's like depicting the successful military operation but it's very submissive in the way that it makes you empathize with like low lives and like criminals um who show like the inefficiencies and like the harsh bureaucracy of the US army it's like this great action film but it's not you know painting like the the US government in a good light at all and this is a similar thing where each of these little pieces come together to paint a very unsympathetic and like brutalist depiction of this drug war in china where both sides are populated by just like cruelty <laughs> and nihilism and like entropy like uh yeah to me it's it's also very symphonic this movie real quick do you think mission to mars is one of De palma's good ones i've not seen it yet it's it's one where its reputation is keeping me awake because I, I want to love De Palma. Uh, Watch it. I, I watched it I for the first time. I was surprised at how well it held up for me. And it okay. worked for me. Wow, all right. The cast is pretty stacked. And there's a lot of De Palma shots and stuff. And I don't know. I, I, I really dug it. And the CGI, there's like one bit of dodgy CGI. But for the most part, it actually looks surprisingly good for a 22-year-old yeah. movie. Okay. See, I just had that a similar reaction to watching Raising Kane, so maybe I shouldn't be too worried because, like, I that one I had, to, I had not heard great things about, and then I saw it and I was like, "What is not to love about this? This is just classic batshit insane De Palma stuff." Um, That's what Mission to Mars yeah. gets to. Yeah. It's okay. Awesome. Wonderful. I'm sure I'll love it then. So, Josh, you want to wrap this one up here and 
give us your final thoughts on drug war. Yeah. Um, I am so glad you brought this movie to us, Greg. This was fantastic. Oh, uh, I think I'm giving this like four and a half stars. It didn't make me cry. That's what five star movies like give me a, <laughs> that big final push over the edge. But as far as like, this is exactly my shit too. Like it's got some action. It's got a lot of people being experts at what they're doing. Uh, that Michael Mann, Howard Hawks thing, right. Of these people working through this um, and being so good and so granular at the, the details that it's showing you. Uh, I just loved this movie. I thought it was great. Oh, I'm very happy to hear that. It was a little, cause like I said, I, I purely did just pick this cause it's like, Oh, this is a classically cool pick. I know I love this. I didn't know if it would, you know, work for other people. Uh, as well as it does for me, but yeah, very happy to hear that. What would you give this one? Is it five star for you, Greg? I think I'm at a four and a half as well, because as much as I, I do just love every detail of this movie, it is, I'm similar to you, Josh, it, it needs that extra something that, like, it needs to light this, like, fire in me that I really uh, get with five star movies, and it's just not, like, I find every piece of it interesting and really exceedingly well done. Um, but it does not like for me transcend into like affecting me deeply emotionally, you know, uh, as is the case with this show. Often our conversations elevate the movie. And so what yeah. was like a four out of five is, uh, I, I, especially after talking about it now, I really loved this. I think it's a solid four and a half. Um, yeah, the procedural aspects, the tension that that builds to then lead up to the, wild west shootouts at the end which are such a wonderful relief of that tension and the overarching messages and nihilism and you know state critique there's just so much to love here uh so thank you i'm also really grateful you brought this one i'm super happy to hear that it's such a relief <laughs> i was stressing out <laughs> since i picked it <laughs> so uh we'll take a little break and up next we will be talking about the raid 2 okay welcome back so up next we are going to be talking about the raid 2 which was directed by gareth evans and came out in 2014 and this is an indonesian movie it's a sequel to the raid or the raid redemption as it's known in the u.s and i brought this one to you guys and i can't wait to talk about this because you both have not seen this and i've seen it a, um, a bunch of times so to start with, have you both seen The Raid 1? Yeah, um, I saw it a couple years back, and I greatly, greatly enjoyed it. Um, you know, it was one of those things where I, I've, I'm a big fan of uh, the, I think it came the same year, but the Judge Dredd film from that year, Dredd, starring uh, uh, Carl Urban. And um, yeah, anything like that, these sort of like, you know, single location floor by floor based act. I loved it. It's it's so conducive to a really fun action film. Um I had seen the raid one when it first came out and you know I had to rewatch it to prep for the raid two. So yesterday I was like, how am I gonna fit in three movies in the next like sixteen hours? <laughs> but I did it. So and I'm glad I did too. Oh wow. Good oh, for man. you. That's a lot of action for one day. Seriously. 
I'm, I'm I feeling like very I watched powerful. The Raid too, and then I watched it with the commentary track right after. So it was oh my five God. straight hours of <laughs> madness, and it about melted my brain. That's incredible. I, I really wish I had rewatched the first one because after I finished this, uh, I loved it, and then was reading just to get a better handle on everything and remind myself of a few points. This morning, I was reading a synopsis, and I was like, "Oh, there's a lot of connections to the first one." I did not really catch or remember um that would have been very handy for going into two yeah so i i was the same way and honestly watching the commentary even after watching this movie twice in the span of about two and a half months watching it with the commentary was when i was like oh that's what's happening (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah we we got our our main character is rama played by uh Iko Uwais, uh, again, trying the pronunciations, no offense if I butcher them. And, I mean, Iko is like the heart and soul of the Raid franchise, and I just can't speak highly enough about this guy. I just think he's one of the most badass dudes who's still a pretty solid actor. But, like, in this movie at one point, it's the only scene that he was uncomfortable doing is the one where they make him strip down and get naked. <laughs> and he did not. He was uncomfortable doing that. And they're like, listen, you don't even have to take your underwear off because we'll pan it up as it goes. But when he's shirtless, I swear he just looks like a regular dude. Mm-hmm. And in a world of superheroes and Marvel movies and every single motherfucker being so cut and ripped and on weird diets and everything... It was really satisfying to see a guy just look like a regular dude who kicks ass. Absolutely. Yeah. You would not think that he was going to look that normal based on what he manages to pull off in this film. Like, you would imagine he'd be absolutely shredded. Uh, But you're right. He's just got a a very normal looking body, which was... I I clocked that, too. It was refreshing. And uh, so, you know, this movie is actually pretty similar to... Um, drug war in some ways as far as the whole idea of going undercover but this one definitely goes towards the more melodramatic role route where you're undercover for a long time and so you know we meet Iko and he thinks or Rama he's gonna be in jail for a few months and it it turns into years and this was one plot point that confused me they say he beat the shit out of a politician's kid yes <laughs> to get into jail and that was a filmed scene that they just skipped past and decided that due to the pacing of the movie and how long it is, uh, you know, Evans, especially after the raid one, he started the movie slow because you wanted to let viewers know that this is not going to be that same movie. This is not going to be a relentless nonstop action fest. There's going to be plot and character movements and emotion in this one. I really loved that decision. Uh, just thinking of my memory of the first one and how it moves at a breakneck speed and you get into it so quickly in that and it just never lets up um but this one like i really appreciated it that it did take its time to build character and uh you know it's really established like this this kind of like epic (laughs) that's going to be going on here and all these various like character motivations and character relationships like it does a wonderful job like putting all these pieces in place. 
Josh, what scene stood out from you from the Raid 1? Because thinking back on it now, that movie is so relentless that I really have a hard time taking it apart and like remembering specific scenes from it. So the two big moments for me are the super tense uh, scene where they're hiding in the walls. Uh, and Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. The guy comes in with the machete and just starts stabbing through the walls. Uh, oh yeah. That's yeah. That one. And he cuts Rama along the cheek and Rama like grabs the blade to squeegee the blood off it as it's going back through the wall so <laughs> they don't get caught. I'm like, that's that's awesome. Oh wow, I never noticed I never noticed the squeegee aspect of that. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> also, that's uh so Rama still has that scar in this mm-hmm. movie. Uh yeah. and then the other one is really the uh it's one of my favorite fights in the movie, the first one. Uh, is the fight with Mad Dog, where it's the two-on-one. Um, and Mad Dog is the, the character with the long hair who the actor comes back in this. Mad Dog is, uh, I believe his name is Koso in this. Right. Yes. And uh, I remember him. He's got such Garrus a distinctive look. It was, I, I remember that he was in the first film as well. Um, but I was like, I'm pretty sure he died in the first film. So this must mm-hmm. be... <laughs> same actor playing a different character but yeah he's a, he's a very memorable actor himself so i definitely i clocked immediately it's like oh it's this guy again yeah josh does he die in the first one yes yeah he's brutally killed in the, <laughs> in the first one <laughs> at, at the end of that sequence i believe he's also in i think it's john wick three i um, think he's in okay. the, the final fight inside that whole glass art structure building yes. thing. It's yeah, it's either two or three. I don't remember which one it is, right? But it is it's him and another actor from. It's not Eco Weiss, is it? But I believe it's two actors from the series are in one of the John Wick films. I can't remember. I yeah. do. I did miss. Uh, there's a guy named Joe. I I don't remember his last name. I refer to him as Hot Guy from the Raid One, and he's like the the main protagonist in Raid One and. You get a little photo of him in this movie, and I, I did miss him being in this movie. Um, also, I highly recommend uh, on Netflix, The Night Comes For Us. Yes. Which uses a I've, lot I've of these guys. This. It's so violent, because it's a, it's a movie that's just all hand-to-hand combat, and a lot of blades, and it's just so brutally violent. It might, I don't know if the choreography is quite up to this standard. But it's still, it's still shot and edited, and that's like to get around to it. This this movie's stunning because I've never seen fights edited like this. Which do you just get to see everything? You get the flow of the fight. You get the choreography. You understand where people are, and it's just. It's so relentless, but it doesn't hide the action in the cuts often. And so you just get to to see it. And Josh, I remember you mentioned to me like, oh, the Batman, the new one, it kind of does that. And it it, kind of does, but it also, there's like no light in that movie. So it's like (laughs) you don't really have to cut away because it's so fucking dark. It doesn't matter. But it just, this is just such perfection for me. I've never seen fight scenes 
done better than in the raid one and raid two. Yeah, and the way it escalates it in this one to even doing all that with the car chase, which was the standout scene to me in this. Like the standout action scene, maybe aside from some hammer girl stuff, uh yeah. was that car chase and the way that they they manage all of that. Um not just one car being chased by other but two cars with crazy action going on inside and around them and not having it be confusing or like uh you know not getting lost in all of that is such a magnificent feat of like editing <laughs> um I... at one point the camera floats from like the top of one yeah. car floats around goes through the back window and then sticks itself out the other back window to then film the other truck and action happening in that one Josh, logistically, you like to think of logistics. Yes. Uh-huh. What did you think of that car chase? Oh, this that was the only part that I've seen of this movie because there's a famous behind the scenes uh, where they show how they did all that. Um, oh, man. and Okay, I have to track this down. Really? I, I need oh, to see that. Oh, yes. It is, and I will spoil a little bit of it here. You gotta put that in the Discord. The um, part of it is there's a guy inside the seat covering inside the car (laughs) i read that there's a a guy inside the seat yeah (laughs) yes it's oh wait so they hollowed out a seat and put a man inside of it yes (laughs) for what purpose so uh when they hand when the camera goes into the car he's actually holding it they like hand it through from a rig outside and then there's a guy laying on the running board on the far side who I can't do it right now, but reaches up above himself and is shooting. And I'm like, how do you, I have a hard time shooting like regular fight scenes when we have a good (laughs) monitor uh, and everything is fairly stationary in one room. This, I have no idea how you know what you're shooting, you know, as your, your camera ops are handing this thing off from one to another like that. That's insane. And that shot, you know, he said, the Indonesian people hated them as they filmed this because they were creating massive amounts of traffic in the area, uh-huh. <laughs> but they wanted to film. How could they make uh, throw in something that's specific to Indonesia? And one of those things is that's a bus stop, I guess, on that median, mm-hmm. that aluminum and glass building that that car goes through. Oh, my God. And my God, that looks so badass when that car <laughs> rolls through that thing and that entire building collapses upon itself. Yeah, it it is truly spectacular. Like I talking about like drug war being, you know, symphonic or like uh but this is just every, yeah, everything I can't I it does break my mind thinking about having to set all this up and then pull it off on camera. Like it truly is incredible. So Gareth Evans listening to his commentary, it was a really great commentary track. It's on on YouTube. I highly recommend it. He talks about fight scenes and action scenes needing punchlines, needing moments of of elation or moments that the crowd will remember or oh or or laugh or, or cheer or anything. And so, for instance, in this car scene, there's the one punchline where one car the co- cars are nose to nose and one car's in reverse, and the dude in going reverse whips it around and the car goes straight into the median and the driver flies out the windshield. And Evans is like, well, in car chases, you always see the damage to the car, but I wanted to show 
that the driver gets fucked up too there i i literally yeah i had i had that in the note that like movies don't often do that i have that in a note and like really cool that he he shows the driver flying out yeah and, or the other punchline in this was he said um in the raid one at one point we triple tapped a guy in the face and so how do we one up that so when the motorcycle rider is clinging to the side of the car the guy gets, shoots him with an um, automatic pistol like 25 times in the face and it just there's so many moments in this movie where I just make like whoop kind of like just like I make noises <laughs> watching this. I'm just so excited. It's thrilling. There there was one point where uh this is later in, much later in the film near the end but where I I pretty much screamed when it happened one of those little punchlines. Um during the fight at the end of the fight with baseball Batman when he's walking out of the hallway and then you see where the bat is like yo yes <laughs> that it is implanted in his skull and then his head tips over and like the bat like takes on the ground like i think just something about that made me audibly like yelp and scream i was just like oh jesus christ <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's funny you talk about punchlines because i i just uh the, a couple weekends ago i went and saw um indiana jones and the last crusade at the new beverly out here and that is a film entirely comprised of like punchlines like literal punchlines in those action scenes um it, it's so joke heavy and it's so i i love that movie it, it works but for like you know it's all played for comedy and laughs whereas this film has these punchlines that are trying to achieve something completely different uh making them violent and, and like explosive instead the uh, Sean, you talked about. A, go ahead, Josh. I was gonna say you talked about how he wanted to differentiate this from the first one, and you see that in the opening shot, which he kind of returns to similar shots throughout it. Um, this big, wide, expansive um, shot of the fields and the grave that they've dug, uh, and it's just even the framing and. Uh, the architecture of these shots is cool. There's something about it. Um, and I also think of the mud fight where you get these slow motion shots of the guys falling back into the mud and the ripples that happen, like the splashing and the ripples. It's really beautiful. The first one was just brutal all the way through and it's kinetic and it's frantic and you get caught up in that. This one saves time for these other moments to like as counterpoints uh and they often are those punchline moments but they are just these really interesting ways to shoot action that uh they didn't get to in the first one i feel like yeah and and just the slow down nature of some of those shots and it it allows time for the audience to breathe and more kind of like I talked about with Netflix dumping all their TV episodes, you need time to process what you just watched or else it's just going to get erased from your brain. If the next thing just rolls straight in. And you know, if, if we look at, I, I talked about not being able to really distinguish the raid one from itself, this movie, we have the toilet fight. We have mud fight. We have hammer girl on the train. We have baseball boy killing those two people. We have garage fight. We have 
kitchen fight. There's there's so the car chase. There's so many different distinct scenes that are easy for me to remember and recall and think back on. Yeah, it really does justify its long runtime, I think, because it, it just packs it filled with memorable moments and memorable things. Uh, that opening scene, too, I was so... I mean, when I think of the first one, it is entirely one location. It's just enclosed entirely within this one apartment building. And so I think it was a cool way to open this film to like be outside in this expansive area with this great wide shot. And just to tell you right now, away that we're that's going to be doing things differently. Now, did either of you realize this was Rama's brother who no, was being executed? I had no idea. <laughs> that was it, I, when I read the synopsis. I was like, "Oh shit, that was his brother!" Like, okay, all right, that that makes things way different. Looking back, one of my first notes was that I was glad that I had just watched the other one, so I had any clue what was happening in the first like five to ten minutes of this film. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, if we get into the plot of this and kind of ignore all the insane action, but talk just more about the undercover side of this, um, Bejo, the, I believe he's part of the Japanese syndicate, the guy who wears the gloves, um, executes Rama's brother here. And so Rama, you know, Rama's whole story here is one of revenge. And it's unrequited revenge because at the end, Bejo gets shot by Ucho. And so his ambition is not fulfilled. And Evans also talks about it, this movie is about like men's flawed ambitions, basically. Because then we get <laughs> um, Ucho, the, the, the gang politician's son, who wants to be king so badly that he makes these moves and stabs his own father in the back and literally shoots him in the face but then when he's on the top he realizes that it's it's not what is cracked up to be and you know it's not what he wanted and he's been played by everyone too yeah that he's just a piece in everyone else's game i got the impression that bejo was just like i think he thought he was distinct from the japanese and the like indonesian crime families i thought he was like a, just an upstart who was trying to work his way into this world Okay, I could see that, because they do all have, all of him and his guys have tattoos. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, later when you get that execution scene, this is one thing I did not clue in on. So, you know, during that prison mud fight, they're trying, a certain group of guys are trying to execute Ucho. Rama thinks they're after him for being a cop or something, but they're after him, Ucho. And... So Evans says that in that mass execution scene inside that beautiful ballroom, that those guys were basically willing participants, willing to give their oh, lives wow. for their boss. And I didn't read that at all no. on either viewing. So oh. I thought that was interesting that like he says the last guy kind of looks over at Bejo and almost like gives him a nod of like <laughs> this is for you or something. Wow. It, it was really interesting. I didn't pick up on that See, at all. Yeah, that worked on me the same way it worked on Ucho. Like, it's like, oh, great, a chance for revenge. Cool. Like, uh, <laughs> what, a very, what a nice thing for Bejo to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was very smart to make it a tiny box cutter that Ucho uses to kill these guys. One, because for some reason that's more disturbing mm -hmm. 
than like a big knife. But two, in those long shots, it must make it so easy to just do the sleight of hand where you just have the actor hold his fist up to the person's neck and you don't have to hide the knife because it's so small (laughs) that you can then like just shoot the blood out of his fist or whatever and just on a practical standpoint it must have made it easier (laughs) that's a really good observation i love that layer that has to be one of my favorite like villain layers i've seen in that ballroom that they're in it's absolutely massive and like um it adds to the epic scale of this movie uh, and it makes Bejo such a classic bad guy. <laughs> Just the fact that he has this opulent place. That location does exist. They did build the stage at the back, and then the stairs leading up to it are actually CGI because they didn't have time to build an wow. intricate staircase. So that's why it's 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 only shot in like long from the front of the stage. Otherwise, you're on the stage looking over the side where you wouldn't see the staircase. Whoa. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, Josh, can you remind me, in that fr- my memory of the first movie is that there is a decent amount of like digital blood spray in that, that some of the gore was done with CGI. I didn't notice nearly as much of this one. There were a couple moments where I could kind of tell um, that the blood spray is digital, and I am, you know, I think like most <laughs> film nerds, 100%. A proponent of practical effects over CGI. Um, I thought this was a fantastic way to of a, a blend of them. Like I had just enough of both uh, to kind of satiate me to not go too far into like the digital realm, but it, it still had a lot of great practical work too. And so that stairs is a perfect example. I never would have noticed unless you just mentioned it. The the first one it is distractingly obvious sometimes when it's digital spray. Yeah. Um, Especially there's a lot of spray that happens specifically that is like, it feels like it's not comped in perfectly, uh, but which would be incredibly hard to do with uh, the first one. The camera feels a lot more handheld and I don't want to say sloppy because that like implies bad, but it's a lot rougher than in this film. Um and I can't imagine trying to track, you know, uh, what's supposed to be a 3D object through that handheld kind of space like that. The only thing he mentioned on the commentary track was that they figured out a way to use blood-filled condoms with a string attached to them. And when you yank on the string, you get a real nice splat of blood. And then, of course, he said he likes it because then the blood sticks to the environment and mm-hmm. to the clothing <laughs> in a way that CGI blood never will. I can't imagine having to reset one of these action set pieces uh, with real blood, though. I was thinking of that when um, the guy the guy who's not Mad Dog in this one, um, the alleyway <laughs> fight with all the snow. Oh, he's just, he's just known as the assassin. Okay. Yes, when when the this. curved the curved knife guy. Yes, that whole because uh, it what is it? He gets his back cut open, uh, and it just feels like there's a stack of bodies. There's snow everywhere, and it feels like you would have to get that in one one day at the very least, and not do any resets to it for all the continuity for everything that's happening there. Yeah, that snow in Indonesia scene, uh, 
the director kind of laughed at himself because he's like, I know it's preposterous. I know it's pretentious. <laughs> but basically, it's like something about cold and like as the bad guys do stuff, they come out of a refrigerator and they, they, they're cold and blah, blah, blah. He's like, I know it's pretentious bullshit. I just wanted snow because it looks so cool. <laughs> and it reminded me, uh, our movie club on Sundays, we watched one called Lady Snowblood old Japanese movie which seemed to heavily inspire Kill Bill and that totally reminded me of this this alley fight in the snow here also um one thing to know that I thought was really interesting is the, uh the assassin curved blade guy who I think the the pinnacle of this movie for me is that the kitchen fight I think the kitchen fight is one of the most stunning pieces of choreography I've ever seen and Greg, I, I, it's funny that you mentioned these being musicals because I do look at them as beautiful dances yeah. and rehearsed choreographies. And uh, Evans, the assassin character, is not an actor. He's just a martial arts guy. And so the fact that he was able to actually bring like all, all of those like looks that he does and hand movements and stuff with his eyes that was just all his intuition so for this guy to bring all of this character to a i think it's a silent character too i don't think he says a word so. in this movie yeah that was gonna that, that is what i was gonna say is that like it's so that is strangely a, a fight that's so emotionally charged with no dialogue uh when he walks in and they just look at each other across the kitchen and then like the staff files out like it really was stunning to me. It's just like, oh my god! Like I am so, so invested in this. Suddenly, uh, it's a classic like spaghetti western thing, like before a duel, just these two guys staring each other down, like knowing what's about to happen. Um, and I had to look it up too. He's the other actor that's in John Wick Three. It's him, and then the guy that played Kosos. Uh, oh, see, I gotta. I need to watch that John Wick three fight again now. If yeah, it's me those too. two guys, it is. Yeah, I remember that being one of the highlights of the film too. Was that that their confrontation? I honestly, I just remembered I was exhausted by the time yes. John Wick three got to that <laughs> fight though, and so I kind of didn't have the energy for it. So I feel like if I just jumped straight to that, it would be really exciting to watch now. Totally. Yeah, I do remember thinking that, like, uh, even while watching that. I don't think I, I don't remember if I had seen the raid one even at that point. Maybe I had, but um, just even noticing how much more fluid and like, uh, you know, mobile those guys were compared to Keanu Reeves, who Keanu Reeves is, is extremely impressive as a martial artist and things, but it's like these guys, they're on another level. <laughs> like, and you can tell in that scene in their fight. So this kitchen fight, I did oddly feel a building of emotion inside me and i know it's like the music builds and gets more intense but it was just the desperation and these guys are beating the ever-living fuck out of each other and it just it's it's one of those action pieces which like it pushes a human so far to the limit that it i just feel drained and exhausted and also it's like just that feeling of like survival instinct and adrenaline flowing through you as you face near death at the hands of this guy with two curved knives. It's really stunning. Josh, you have anything for the kitchen? The, uh, I love how they use the environment of the kitchen. Like, they're bouncing off of the countertops and 
you know, they're tumbling across the open spaces, but then like backing each other up into the counters and the shelves and everything. And it just feels like it, after watching once again, so many Marvel movies where things are happening in this very open space because there's not hardly anything on set when they actually shoot it, except for maybe some green boxes <laughs> that they turn into to obstacles. Um, to see this stuff happen in a real space like that just feels, it feels so much more brutal and so much, like you said, more desperate and realistic in a way that when I'm watching the other stuff, I don't necessarily think about it, but when I watch this, I really appreciate that uh, the rawness that that brings to it. When two guys know that they're the bosses of the movie, and it's <laughs> going to be like that final test, like boss versus boss, finally someone here is going to be able to challenge me. Uh, yeah, I, the way they wiggle up to each other, just squiggling their feet <laughs> along the floor at the very start of the fight, I find delightful. And I guess that's an homage to to Bruce we- Bruce Lee movies and like Enter the Dragon, which I I haven't I have not seen like any kung fu movies in my life. Are are wow. you guys fans of those? Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, my my grandmother is like a she was a massive kung fu film fan. She loved to, to put those on and just like she was uh so entertained. So I I watched a ton of like dubbed ones growing up, and then uh. Actually, that Chinese cinema class, we watched some really good ones that were, you know, kind of influential to the genre. And then since then, yeah, I I don't watch nearly as much as I want to, but I, I find those incredibly entertaining. Um, I don't know if this is controversial, but like, I mean, it probably is because he was so popular, but I haven't loved many of the Bruce Lee ones I have seen. Um, I find that he's an incredibly charismatic and entertaining screen presence. And he really delivers on some highlight, like, you know, some great moments. But as a whole, those as like as movies, they're not the best things to watch. That's a lot of the plotting and everyone else surrounding him. I don't feel stacks up to like the charisma that he necessarily brings or had in his life. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, Enter yeah. the Dragon is a pretty fun movie, and, like, John Saxon is in it, and he's really good, mm-hmm. and um, it's a very simple plot, but it is, like, you are just kind of biding your time until the next really cool action scene where, like, Bruce Lee stomps someone to death <laughs> in front of a crowd <laughs> of, like, spectators, like, uh, you know, or he busts out the, the nunchucks and manages to, like, really kick ass. Like, uh, in between that, it gets kind of plotting, and... um. That is the exact same. That movie is was basically remade uh, later as Mortal Kombat, the '90s Mortal Kombat movie, and mm-hmm. I would oh, <laughs> rather watch that. It's the same plot. It's exactly the same. Mortal Kombat. Exactly. Are Jackie Chan movies? Are Jackie Chan movies kung fu movies? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, he he. I would say it's probably his own like subgenre because he takes stuff a step for a step further, but like. Police story is absolutely incredible. That's probably the best one from him I've seen. Um, I, 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 I like uh, Who Am I a lot. Yeah, that's that's one I'm missing. It's one I have to check out. I really love it's it's crazy and cheesy and ridiculous, but I love Rumble in the Bronx too. Uh, 
that one gets such did such a weird comedic place, and it really delights me. I do like I like Police Story, and I like uh, Project A. Oh, see, well, I don't one, know Project yeah, A. That one I don't think I've heard of. Oh yeah, I have a lot of gaps. I am a big kung fu fan, but I'm missing a lot. Yeah, that's one of those. Uh, I watched I watched a bunch of his stuff a couple years ago. It kind of all I tried to do it in order, uh, and it's one of those things where I feel like the filmmaking caught up to what he could do. You know, it was a little flatter in the beginning, and definitely by kind of like the middle of his run, um, where I think he's he's directing and working with his tight little team to do the choreography, there's a lot of the, they're really highlighting, they're able to highlight what he can do. And I think that's one of those things that Bruce Lee was done a disservice by, was a lot of the filmmaking is kind of just there and functional around what he's doing. There's another moment in The Raid 2, which is referential, and it's when Rama gets a guy pinned to the ground and he has the side of his head on the ground, and he punches down, and he punches him in the side of the head about 15 times in about a half, one and a half seconds or something, and uh, I guess that's a an Ip Man yes, reference, which I is another of. series Wait, I right. do not know. Yeah, uh, we've, I've seen a couple fights from that series, but I have not... Uh, you know, dive into it for some reason. I'm a, I love Donnie Yen too. He's done some of my favorite, um, you know, uh, Hong Kong action films. Uh, he did this movie that I saw called, uh, I think it's called New Dragon Inn, or maybe it's just called Dragon Inn in some places, but it, it's a remake of like a classic wuxia film that was made in the 90s, uh, where Donnie Yen plays this, um, evil eunuch like politician who is chasing the children of some uh somebody that they assassinated so he can wipe out some bloodline and that is one of the most like insane films i have ever seen but it is spectacular and there's a great great moment in that movie where a man's hands get shredded down to the bones so he's got skeleton hands and he continues like fighting several opponents <laughs> it is really spectacular um, so yeah, I highly recommend uh, New Dragon Inn. I think it's from like 1992. Uh, that's like in Crank when Jason Statham cuts a guy's <laughs> hand off that's holding a pistol and then picks it up and pulls the trigger of the guy's finger to shoot Oh, yes. <laughs> I keep telling Josh one day we're going to just do an episode about Crank 1 and 2. You should. Crank, I've only, I haven't seen 2 yet, but Crank 1 I, I found to be very fun. Uh, if not oh, really man. stupid, but very fun. I have such a soft spot in my heart for that series. Crank 2 is the only time I've ever been alone in a theater. Oh, wow. <laughs> Every other movie I've had, I saw Hardcore Henry with one woman who was middle-aged woman. <laughs> it's a 75-minute movie. She walked out in the 70th minute. Wow. So you put in all of this time and you left, like, at the climax? Like, what are you, what's going on with you, lady? <laughs> Uh, so to talk about some other oh sorry josh go ahead um i was gonna ask uh have either one of you seen ricky o the story of ricky oh yes oh my <laughs> oh absolutely yeah that is <laughs> it's it's famous on our discord amongst our friends but i 
I haven't seen that one yet. No. Yeah, Sean, you have to see it. It's it's <laughs> incredible. That is a that is a five star perfect film. Like there is nothing else quite like it. <laughs> it's amazing. He punches through people. It's astonishing. Constantly. That is like that is happening every few minutes, it feels like someone is like having fists put through their body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's great. Uh so Oh, there's so many cool fights in this movie. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Greg. There's a moment in this film that really reminded me of Ricky O. Just the whole prison element made me think of it a little bit. But um, because Ricky O takes place entirely in a prison, but there's a moment during that. Uh, I think it's during the mud fight where, like, it it's like a one shot kind of going through as like passing a lot of people as there's just stuff happening on the sides. And there's a guy getting his face like ripped off, <laughs> just like laying on the ground as he's screaming and it's like they're tearing at him. That is that is a Ricky O moment. There's lots of face yes. rips in Ricky O, and I was like, I, yeah, I was delighted to see that <laughs> just happening on the on the side on the sidelines. That panning shot from left to right in the prison yard uh, also reminded me a lot of the old boy hallway fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a ton of old boy in this too, which is one of the one of the greatest fight scenes ever filmed. Uh, I so there's so many cool scenes. Uh, the scene where Koso, we first get introduced to Koso on the street, and he has a machete. He he has the machete in his hand the whole time, but he doesn't kill a single bodyguard. So he dispatches each one of those guys one handed on his way to kill that mega. And I love that the the victim pushes that woman at Koso like she's (laughs) he's going to get distracted or like murder her or something. And he's just I don't care. He's straight after her. And, you know, there's there's a lot of cool shots, too. I think the cinematography is really creative. And there's one in this scene where he's going to stab the guy through the fence. And it's it's an alley shot shot from a bird's eye view. And we get this right to left, right to left pan that I think it's just such a unique perspective. And Evans talks about a lot in the fight scenes themselves. He's trying to preserve the 180-degree rule of keeping characters on the left and right during a fight, but if he wants to break that for whatever reason, he'll often go to a bird's-eye vertical shot and then come back down, and for some reason, that helps the audience's brain adjust where you don't feel that jolt of having characters flipped on or flipped around in the frame yeah that's incredibly smart it's really um i think in the kitchen fight and and a couple other it's one thing when he does it when you're in the big expanse of like the mud pit or um that the alley fight uh, or the one you were just talking about sean but when he can do it in the kitchen fight as well he does a similar trick, but it's obviously a lot closer um, because there's a great flip because you're seeing uh, one of the guys come up with one of the curved blades and the other one come up on the other side. And it happens so fast that it looks like they're doing it simultaneously. And I think your brain processes it that way. But there's actually like at least three shots that made that up that all happen in sequence. And that's one of those where I just notice it and I'm like, how do you how do you do that? How do you plan the choreography and the camera work to catch all of that and that you know that it's going to make sense ahead of time? I it's just 
it's rehearsals, dude. It's they rehearse everything and they choreograph everything. And he talks about the guys will come up with basically like if you think of it like a tiny little pieces of a song or something. And so, and then it's Evan's job to be like, all right, well, what if we put this riff in here, and then that leads to this little move, and then that leads to this choreographed piece, and it's just orchestrating what these what these fighters, these stuntmen, everyone create. Or you get the chance, the case of um, Hammer Girl. She's uh, she's not a trained martial artist. I was she just going to bring just this an up. actor before this. this. Yeah, she trained for six months. To, just for this role, it, people are so bought in on this movie, and you can tell. And I, I don't think this movie could ever get done if you don't have every single person in the cast and crew giving it everything. And I, 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 I have to feel like one aspect of this would be like pride in, in Indonesian film, that y- you're creating something that is going to be seen globally especially in the raid 2 after the the reception of the first one and you know how important it is to to give everything because you're representing your country in your country's film industry. Yeah, uh it, this is really is fascinating as a sequel to like a breakout hit like that. Uh currently on my podcast we're we're talking about sequels all month that's our entire theme uh is like, you know, follow-ups to horror movies and um We've been discussing like what makes a good sequel, and I think that like this is a, a, a this is one where you can I, I I totally feel that that pride in the first one, and that that drive to like up the stakes and up the ante this time, uh, in every aspect, not just like the story, but like in in its in its fight scenes and in its action, it really comes through and it manages to like completely top the first one. From I mean, again, I have not seen the first one in a couple of years, but it's like <laughs> this is making taking everything you love with that first one and building upon it and giving you like exactly what you would want from a sequel to the raid and so much more so for you guys what makes a good sequel what's what's important for you to have it is it is it that topping nature is it staying true to the source material or is it is it changing the source material because you don't want to repeat what what do you find you value for me, it really depends on the series. Um, one of the reasons I love the Alien series is that every movie is different until you get to the, you know, um, Covenant and Prometheus and that stuff. Um, but the fact that each filmmaker takes it in their own direction, uh, I I think that's fantastic and it's really fun. And they wound up making a like a complete um mythos of uh xenomorphs and kind of the history of everything if out of all these disparate elements but then there's something really comforting about like each era of james bond movies where you're just like oh okay i know what i'm getting the first several you're just like this is a travel log movie with little bits of fighting and some quips and like a lady in a bikini and they do that next. That's fine. They do it again. Okay, that's great. I know <laughs> there's some beautiful scenery, and it's great. It's you know, don't screw it up too much. I mean, that's what, yeah, that's what everyone loves about like the Friday the Thirteenth series is that you, those first eight you can just drop in on any of those, and you know you're going to get a summer camp hangout film 
with some crazy violence and some like you know probably pretty stupid but comforting and funny writing like it's just you know exactly what you're you're getting when you put one of those on um but i i think it's doing this for the podcast it's really come down to like a good sequel is going to have its own sense of identity but still carry over some aspects of that first film that you loved uh, or that you enjoyed so like we the first one we talked about was pet cemetery 2 which i had never seen um but i had seen the first pet cemetery a few times and i really liked it because it's got like uh an interesting emotional core to it and it's got some crazy extreme graphic like slasher violence at the end and pet cemetery 2 has uh some of that emotional a little bit of that emotional core than some pretty like wild violence but is so its own thing because it's about teenage boys as opposed to like a father losing a child in the first pet cemetery so even though it's the same director um as the first film it still feels like it stands on its own as a movie it's not so like uh reliant on that first film or like calling back to that first film even though it does it it still manages to like stand on its own as its own film and i know that's a weird example because i know a lot of people don't like pet cemetery 2 i think it's like pet cemetery 2 it's like famously kind of a shitty movie but i actually found a lot to love about it as a sequel i watched pet cemetery 2 as a kid and i, I didn't watch horror movies as a kid and i don't think i finished it either but i remember feeling incredible like sadness and yes. vulnerability when the bully kids take edward furlong's kitten yeah and they steal it and, and just me being a kid loving animals that hit me like so hard and I, I don't i don't think i watched much more of that movie i think i remember the mom on set at, at the start <laughs> of that but mm -hmm. yeah. but by the time we get to like the motorcycle stuff and um Oh god, it's not Powers Booth. Who's the actor in that one? Clancy Brown, who is so Clancy good. Clancy Brown, in that. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I don't remember him going off as a kid, so I must have turned it off after I just got too stressed out or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, that movie is it's pretty bleak and pretty. It's such a downer film. In addition to being wildly like cheesy and funny too. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that is where if I had to like you know give a baseline for a good sequel i think it has to have its own identity in addition to continuing a story or a theme or whatever um the last one we just did and i can't not i have been obsessed with this movie this past i've watched this movie three times in the past week but uh lucio fulci's zombie 2 which is like marketed as a sequel to dawn of the dead but it has zero other connection aside from marketing but uh, we were talking about that because it was it was marketed as a sequel to Dawn of the Dead, and if we talk about it as a sequel to Dawn of the Dead, it is ha has a lot of the, it has the commonality of zombies and like you know bleakness, but it is such its own film and doing its own thing. But it is still interesting to kind of talk about those and how they relate to each other. Is that where Zombie versus Shark comes from? That is, yeah, exactly, yes. And also, is that the uh... The eye scene, the eyeball scene. Yeah, see, yeah mm -hmm. yes, it is. See, it, it those are the those are the two things I remember from that. Yeah, those are the two most memorable parts of it for sure. Um, <laughs> it's incredible. So I, I don't. We've been so obsessed with it. I don't like eyeball stuff, and in the raid, 
I don't like calf muscle stuff. So many Ooh, people yeah. are getting their calf muscles stabbed and slashed with a bottle, or one guy kicks through a window of a car and then gets his leg like dragged back across that broken gl- and every time for some reason i'm just like sensitive about my calves and so i'm just like ah every time that happens in this movie <laughs> there's a shot where hammer girl uses the claw end of the hammer like and gets someone in the back of the knee and then rips it down their calf and i was like right to their achilles tendon and i was like oh god that's I, horrific. the other hammer girl- how sharp are those claw hammers that she uses because She's yeah. destroying people with them. Oh the my other, god! The other, uh, the other Hammer Girl part I was going to talk about is when she hit. I think this happens multiple times actually, but she hits somebody like under their jaw and then like pulls up, you know, mm-hmm. and up and out. Uh, yeah, you see ridiculous. the claw inside their mouth. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that scene is so cool. I, I just that set that they built, uh, that subway set, is really cool and just. I love all the people, all the normal people scrambling and that Japanese gang. There's something cool about them all having those little yellow sheath knives that they mm-hmm. pull out. Um, but yeah, that the hammer girl scene was great. And then, you know, Evans talked about being afraid of right after that, the, the baseball. He calls him baseball Batman, but I think baseball boy <laughs> goes better with hammer girl. Yes. So I call him baseball boy. Um, his assassination scene. What did you think when he points to the bleachers and calls his shot like Babe Ruth? Because I loved that moment. I love it. How do you how how can you resist not doing that with a character who uses a baseball, not just a baseball bat as a weapon, but a baseball bat and a baseball as a weapon? I love that that's included in there. <laughs> so one thing Evans talks about with uh, baseball boy and Hammer Girl again. This is not in the movie, but this is just in his context of making the movie is they were kids. And so when she spins a coin on the table, their father used to do that with them. And whoever lost the coin toss would get abused by him. And so one that's why she has a she's blinded in one eye. And so one time baseball boy said enough and killed his dad. And then Bejo adopted these two kids who were now foster kids. And has kind of raised them. And so that's why they seem to be a little bit childish still. Is because they've just been reigned, raised as like child-minded killers. Which is why Baseball Boy asks for his ball back after he hits I, the one guy with that it. That is so funny. Uh, he hits it at, at, at uh, Rama too at the end. And I was just like, hey, can you get that for me? Like when it's stuck in the wall. <laughs> um <laughs> But that's really interesting. I could really tell that there was way more going on with them than the movie was letting on. And I loved it. This is that perfect, like, Star Wars thing of, like, Boba Fett and the mystery behind the character of what makes him so cool when you first are introduced to him is that he has this distinctive look and style. And the way characters talk to and around him uh, really gives you the mystery. And I I 100% felt that with them. Uh, just like the silent storytelling of their relationship, the way they speak to each other, and baseball bat boys, I'm also going to do that because I think that's better as well. Baseball boy, um, his his reaction when she dies is one of the most emotional moments in the movie to me. Like it's so yeah, quick, for sure. It's so fast, but his desperation and horror as he sees her get killed, and then his like fury after that too. Like it is such efficient storytelling. 
where you don't need to hear that backstory between them. You see her fucked up eye, you see his reaction, and you think of how they talked before, and you're just like, there is something here that is like, that goes beyond what we see in the movie. Yeah. I, I love them. They are, they are incredible. <laughs> Those two characters. The fight scene, just baseball boy leading up, beating the shit out of everyone with his bat. It's so cool. And then the fact that it's an aluminum bat, so you just get that wonderful ping every time he hits someone. <laughs> oh, it's so satisfying from a sound design standpoint. Uh, but his death, as you mentioned before, is so satisfying and so cool and iconic. And it's definitely like a punchline moment. And so they cut out they cut out a section of the baseball bat and put something in there for the actor to bite onto. And then they zip tied it to his head. And they said that he had to wear that baseball bat on in his mouth on his face for about three hours. Oh my oh gosh. My God. Uh, I also love, speaking of sound design, when uh, baseball, when Batboy is uh, attacking the guys outside the building, uh, and he's like, there's just this one dude, he's totally handing his ass to him, right? But the guy, when he hits him, is making like these, uh, 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 sounds every time he gets hit. <laughs> and it cracked me up. I'm like, I don't know what sound you would make if someone hits you five times with a baseball bat, but... Ugh, is pretty good. One of my favorite punchline laugh moments happens later after Rama drives his car through the garage as we kind of move towards the end of this movie. I know we've been jumping around, but uh, there's one guy that there's an I-beam, a steel I-beam that's about head height, and then they're on a little platform. And so Rama throws his head that hits the I-beam knocks him down and then the side of his head then hits like the edge of the platform and he falls off and it's just such a cool thing to and that's something that you choreograph on location you can't really script that until you get to a place and you start messing around with okay what could work in this spot how could we utilize this and there's one stunt that really shocks me in this movie and it's in the it's in the nightclub when they go to kill koso and Koso throws a guy off of the balcony. Oh, yeah. Straight yeah. onto his back on one of those bar tables. And you can tell that those little bar tables are padded, but it's like, it doesn't matter. I, you know, me being 35 years old right now, imagining like <laughs> taking a shot like that to my spine. I don't understand how these stuntmen do this. I mean, it really is like. Uh, you talked about the dedication that you can see in these in these performers, but like, it really is you're you're giving your entire body over to this movie production, and uh, risking so much for the benefit of this film, and uh, <laughs> and just in that hope that it's going to pay off, that's going to be worth it, uh, and it absolutely is. Like, it it really is incredible to think about how much they they put themselves through for this. I really wish there was one of those um, reels at the end where they show them doing all the stunts and things going wrong yeah, and all like, that kind of like stuff. Like Jackie Chan, often I, I, does, I yeah. would have loved a Jackie Chan failed stunt reel at the end of this. <laughs> that would be great. 
I feel like, except I, I was going to say, I feel like all movies should do that. But then, you know, Rush Hour had such success with it that people went nuts over it. But I mean, and they took that from the Jackie Chan, that, that Jackie mm-hmm. Chan kind of brought that to that series. But then comedy started to do it. And so many comedy bloopers are just people. I can't think of the word. What's the word when you fuck up your line and then everyone laughs? Breaking. Uh, Breaking, right? Yeah. Corpsing. Corpsing, yes. I okay. think is what they call it. Yeah. But either way, it's just it's just not funny when an actor like fucks up his line and then it's like, oh shit, what's my line again? And then like it just sometimes there's just not enough there for a blooper reel. Yeah. They started to really I, I uh was rewatching Taudega Nights recently. And they do that during the credits. They just show you every alternate, like, ad lib, um, you know, for, like, every scene. And then it it just gets me to think about how empty the script is in general, where it's just like, and then Will Ferrell <laughs> improvs for five minutes, and we just use the best ones. Uh, Greg, I appreciated that- <laughs> your review of that movie, because that... Talladega Nights is one of the longest movies I've ever watched. It's insane. It is insane. When I got to, when I was rewatching it and the final race started and I checked the time and it was like 35 minutes left, <laughs> I was absolutely stunned. And then anytime they cut away, there's like a series of jokes in that where it's like a character we don't know, one of the random like announcers at the NASCAR race keeps interviewing people that are, he says it's one celebrity and it's just a random person. They cut back to that well like four or five times. And it is just like it's complete filler. We don't know who those characters are. We don't know why this guy is having this issue, like what it really is. And it's just like, oh, he says this guy's Larry Bird, but it's a black guy instead of Larry Bird. And it's that's the, the extent of the joke. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is that is filled with moments like that. <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason I have it in me to just be I don't like Adam McKay. I'm coming and around. I to know that, I've to liked some time. of his stuff, yeah. but like, don't look up. I didn't. Okay, now this is going to be real hypocritical. I did not watch the movie, mm-hmm. but I hate that movie. <laughs> I am I allowed to do that? I think so. I think you're getting. I think you're picking up on something in that in that movie that I also hated because I, I had the same feeling. I watched a Traor and I was like, I am going to detest that, and then I watched it and I detested it. So like. Uh, you're you're picking up on something that is there in the in the marketing and the trailer for it and something about it, yeah. There's a real smugness to it, I think, that comes through. Uh you know, and just like the premise that like we're smart enough to see the problem and you're not kind of a thing, or you're ignoring mm-hmm. it or whatever. There's there's a there's a real hoity toitiness to to that film. There is a a section of that film that worked for me. Um it was the uh like the little miniature love story uh with the what is it the anarchists or whatever uh and they're right, on top of yeah. the roof like that little i thought that there was more it it stops being smug for a little bit and yeah, it's actually that, that section there's a set yeah it's near the end when they do kind of slow down they have this more human mm-hmm part of it where they realize things are ending and we can just have these nice human moments instead of worrying about like other stuff it's like kind of nihilistic and kind of a downer but you do find little moments of like niceness in there that i yeah i appreciated that too 
And that reminded me of uh, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. The Steve Carell, uh, Kira Knightley, I think, movie. Uh, which makes great use of some Scott Walker songs. And it's just really... The whole movie is those moments, basically. It's really sweet. Right. Uh, and just one of those things that I'm a sucker for, right? Like, it's like an indie darling, sweet movie about the end of the world. Like, okay, yeah, that's very much up my alley. <laughs> my girlfriend and I both cried pretty hard watching that movie. <laughs> that's a rough one. There's another, there's another end of the world one. It's an Australian one called uh, These Final Hours, and it's bleak. But it's similarly, I, that movie just like emotionally crushed me. Hey, this is Sean with an editor's note. If you don't want Michael Mann's heat spoiled, skip forward about 30 seconds, starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Speaking of these emotional moments, I love Ucho's death <laughs> in The Raid 2. Um, so weirdly intimate, and like we talked about, like I think that's another referential point to me that felt a lot like the end of Heat with uh, De Niro and Pacino holding hands <laughs> as as one of them dies, and this is a very similar thing where it's like you don't know if the hug is just like him dying, reaching out and grasping, or it is like a you know, like a topper to their relationship and like what Rama has done for him over the course of the film and then that word ends up like it is a yeah this is something I love about these films is that it's like it is a sneaky way to to get in a lot of like platonic man love you know <laughs> and uh, have it be badass and cool uh, even though it's two guys like out pour, you know pouring their feelings out for each other the way this movie ends really fascinates me because it's been such a satisfying action movie, but it won't give us the satisfaction of the final kill being yeah. cool. And it's not even the revenge kill because Ucho kills Bejo, so Rama doesn't even get that. And there's something downtrodden and deflating about this violence at the end because in the end, it's violence, and violence sucks. <laughs> like this this all sucks if it happens in real life and for that that nine inch nails uh, ghost 14 song or something that i guess evans is a friend of trent reznor's or he met him and reznor gave him his blessing to use that song and i i think it's a pretty profound use of that song at the end of this movie especially as they silence out the japanese guy's uh dialogue at the end because it just it's, it's it's incredibly sad, and you just feel Rama just being finished and and done. And the you know the last line of the movie, no, I'm done. Yeah, I I got emotional. I I didn't get teary, but I I felt emotional at the buildup of this final sequence here, leading to that line, leading to the title card, and I think that song is really what brought me there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I was thinking about with the ending. Um, I think you're you're meant to, but uh, after the car chase, when his, his name was Eka, right? The the, the other the undercover, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. the other undercover cop. With his whole talk with Rama after that, where he he says like it's it never ends. Like this is never you're never gonna have a conclusion to this fight against corruption and crime. 
like there's just going to be more violence and it's just going to keep escalating and getting bigger and bigger uh the idea that like part of the plot to root out the corruption in the police is to cause a gang war which is going to get so many people <laughs> killed in the process uh i find really i find that's an interesting counterpoint to drug war where it's like well how much how far are you willing to go and what are you willing to sacrifice to put an end to this like activity and like is that is the cost of that greater than if you just you know ignored something you know i, I it's it gets into like the idea of justice and like what can you do to really fight this without making things just worse I'm waiting for Josh to say something. I was waiting for Sean to say something. You look like you were moving towards the microphone. <laughs> no, I, I was waiting for you to move towards it. Okay. Well, uh, that whole... The fact that you go from the absolute brutal kitchen fight and then all these literal shotgun blasts, right? Like, um, Boju gets blasted in the... <laughs> in the face and the leg and in the face and it's so savage and then he like essentially tears that couch to shreds with the shotgun and then it's this tiny little moment like it is it's so intimate it's so disturbing like the closeness of that and it it's almost like you on Rama you feel all of the weight of everything he's gone through right then like he's not allowed himself to feel it up until this point and this is you know for everything this is for everybody at this point um and it just feels like the movement is small but the stakes are high the emotional stakes are very high right there rama melted a man's face in yes this movie. <laughs> he, he cooked a guy he hibachi'd a guy Oh, and I it was a cop that moment. Yes, yeah. Oh man, that was incredible. I do want to say I do find it a little confusing in terms of like what exactly Rama is doing undercover. And there's a funny, very funny moment where he gets a call from his handler. Uh, I really liked that character in the beginning. He was like a great, like uh, authoritative figure. And yeah. was, uh really set up like how how brutal this is on both sides. But like um he gets a call and he's like, Hey, I'm just reminding you, you're not here to stop these like criminals. You're here to root out, specifically root out corrupt police officers. And I was like, Oh yeah, what has Rama done on that front to right. get close to the corruption or eliminate it or like bring people out? Like he's not really interacted with any of them. Uh, we do have like the corrupt police figure in this, but like Rama never like is in a place to bust him or get any kind of dirt on him or anything like that. Now, do you think that could be saying that Rama's getting sucked into the crime world, and by the end of this, he has maybe almost lost his identity, oh, and then totally. by the end, he's able to grab, cling back onto it. Yeah, totally. I would say that's a big part of it. Yeah. But uh, it was funny. I just kept expecting a part where it's like, okay, here's where Rama goes after the corrupt police, and then you'd never get anything like that. But it's interesting. I think you're right because, like, uh, you know, he's in order to embed himself in this criminal organization, he spends two years in prison. And they tell him, we've already moved your family to a safe place. They've already taken his family from him. 
So he doesn't have that to fall back on. And then when he calls him, calls his wife later, and um, he says, I don't want to talk to my child. I just want to hear them. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, It's like he's not even at a place where he doesn't like he doesn't want to speak to his own child. He's such a different person than when he was put away and or given this assignment already. So I can absolutely see that. I just I just found it interesting that like it feels like somehow Rama doesn't have a lot to do in the store until the action scenes kick off, you know, and then he is doing wild, wild stuff. But <laughs> but as like an undercover agent, he is really inactive, it feels like. No, Until especially then. compared to Drug War, where yes. we have our lead cop impersonating haha and meeting people and making moves and wheeling and dealing, and Rama's just a hired guard. He's a presence mm-hmm. in the room. Yeah. yeah. Essentially a babysitter for Ucho. That's kind of what Ucho's father like yeah. attacks him with. It's like, go get him a woman, go make him feel better, you know, like stop him from being so emotional and crazy. Josh, as a father, what did you think of that scene where Rama calls home? See, I read it as it was too painful for him. Like, not that he had changed, but that he was trying to change, and he was trying to maintain. And I am not, by the grace of God. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Early on, when we see the apartment they set him up with, that oh, apartment wow. is is killer. <laughs> yeah, I love that space. Yeah. Stunning, yeah, swanky. I love that. Yeah, the wall mounted like CD player he's got is really cool. Yeah, <laughs> I want. I'm gonna look into something like that. It's amazing. Yeah. So, do you guys have any final thoughts here on uh, the raid two? Yeah, uh, I I just really got into you know conversely to. Uh, to drug war the emotional story being told here about like you mentioned this guy losing his identity and uh that very classic like crime thriller trope of getting in too deep undercover whereas drug war purposely like eschews all that this really dives like you know headfirst into it and then punctuates it with just some of the most incredible action scenes like you will see in any movie ever so this was extremely, extremely my shit, and it was uh, shocking to me. It took me this long to see it. So uh, yeah, thank you for for picking this as a as a companion to Drug War. Excellent. Yeah. What would you give this? this one? Is, on I mean, this is star? just as good as Drug War for me for the exact same reasons. This is also a four point five. Um, I think that like I have some slight qualms with like the um the actual like content of the story and how it all operates together. And I do think I am slightly like, uh, confused about what Rama exactly is supposed to be doing. And the fact that he is so somewhat inactive sure. and like the actual like machinations of the, the plot, but that's also by design. So it's, it's like a, it's a, maybe not a fair criticism. Um, but it ends up in such a wonderful place and is so well realized all these action scenes that like, I mean, at the end of it, the story is is great, but it's secondary to uh, all of the set pieces that they're building to, and those one hundred percent all pay off like in spades. And I will be rewatching those constantly just to pick up on new little details and moments in them. So yeah, four point five. 
Awesome. So happy to hear that. Um, I would be remiss by myself if I did not mention the moment in the prison fight where Rama <laughs> kicks a guy's face against... There's like a tile wall, and there's a 90-degree angle of the tile wall, and he just kicks a guy's face, like his cheek gets embedded. There's some crazy shit in this movie, man. This is... This is one of the most spectacular, and I use that word to mean spectacle. This movie, my mouth is just hanging open in just shock watching this movie. Uh, It's one of the most thrilling things I've ever seen. It's one of the best edited and choreographed things I've ever seen. I agree the story's not perfect, but it doesn't matter to me because this is a perfect (laughs) movie. This is a five star. I love this movie so much. I I don't think I could tell you a better action oh, wow. movie for me. I mean, yeah, you, we could talk about like heat <laughs> and stuff and like sure if you want to get like character depth and stuff, but just as far as like action, spectacle, show me something crazy. This is it. This is Top Dog. I I adore this movie. Josh, how about you? Uh, I think and we didn't even touch on really the um Croso uh his little sub storyline of why he gets sacrificed to try to kick off the the gang war um and that he wants to get back to his wife and kid oh, yes yeah. like that <laughs> that's his whole thing and uh so you have this like contrast with Rama and that to me was more emotionally affecting than the rest of the journey. Although I did really feel for the father son dynamic. I thought that was interesting as well. Like, you know, almost Shakespearean of a striver being held down by his father like that. Um, but I think it just doesn't quite reach the heights for me, uh, that drug war did. And, but I do think it's a great expansion of the raid. And for me, watching them back to back, the raid straight into the raid two, it's like the whole world gets opened up. Right on. I'm happy with those ratings. Yeah. I'm glad you said Shakespearean because that was on my brain as well. Uh, I just didn't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be the hyperbolic one here and, and yeah. drag out the bar. I just, I... It's funny because I absolutely thought it when I was watching it, but then I, I also just thought, like, is, does Shakespearean just mean, like, any movie with a family power struggle? Is that just now anything? <laughs> but, then, but it really does feel like it in this film. I can totally see it. I think it absolutely applies. So it's the time of the episode where we do some plugs here. Uh, I would like to plug... I've been watching uh, cult films on Shudder and then also a few episodes of the latest season of the movies that made us on Netflix and man, it's like watching cult films is like a show made for adults and movies that made us is a show for 13 year olds with the attention of a gnat. It's, it, it's, <laughs> it's just night and day. And the, the episode about stalker on cult films is really, really stunning. They interview a guy who had firsthand experience on set there had oh, wow. mentioned, like met, worked with Tarkovsky just a fascinating series that I highly highly recommend and they put in so much research and have so many behind the scenes 
stills and stories and historians. It's just a fascinating series that I highly recommend. Uh, Greg, what would you like to plug? Um, if for some reason somebody is listening to this and they haven't listened to your guys' episode about Stalker, I really, really enjoyed that episode. So uh, first I want to plug that because that was a fantastic episode of this podcast. Well, that's a first for this show. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, of Thanks, course. Um, I thought that was a great discussion uh, about that and Annihilation. Um, of course, I have my own podcast, the Weekly Podcast Massacre, and I think right now uh, we uh, are just wrapping up our month of sequels, which has been a really, really fun month to do. We talked about Pet Cemetery 2, like I mentioned, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and then Amityville 2 and then now Zombie 2 and so it's just been a really great roller coaster of a month and uh, yeah we have a new theme every single month and it's been uh, a blast so listen to that and then uh, I have been reading a ton of Elmore Leonard books with some uh, some other mutual friends and those have been spectacular to to read those are, are really good uh, pulpy crime reads with like some interesting uh, surprising depth to them in spite of they're they're very frank and very straightforward which i really love but they also managed to to really um paint some interesting characters and so yeah elmore leonard that's do you, did you find with the leonard books um not just jackie brown but really those first several tarantino movies wouldn't have existed without elmore leonard <laughs> Oh, yes, absolutely. He and Tarantino really love, like, um, they're really, uh, what they're great at is just, like, imbuing minor side characters with a distinct life of their own somehow, and picking up on little, like, technical details of, like, uh, of things to really just bring out, like, I don't know, there's an interest, that, there's an interest in minute details that they both share. Mm -hmm. and you see it in a lot of the conversations between characters in both Elmore Leonard books and Tarantino movies yeah absolutely he's so indebted to him and yeah. if you read uh, his Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book like it is written exactly like an Elmore Leonard novel <laughs> uh, and it's great it's very entertaining um, I would have to recommend uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons with your friends <laughs> that's I I ran my first uh, campaign. So I started it. We did a one shot a couple of days ago. Uh, and our friend Russell from the Discord uh, came over uh, with a couple other people that I know. And yeah, it was a great time with collaborative storytelling. And uh, I think after the last couple of years, getting to do that kind That's of thing, awesome. having a game day was just. Well, I'm going to put this one. I'm going to put this one in Josh's hands here to wrap us up, but Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. You were a really wonderful guest and brought a oh, really thank you. excellent movie to us. So thank you. Yeah, I am so, it's so, so relieved you guys liked it. Um, and I'm glad my, my attempt to look cool paid off. <laughs> you look <laughs> yeah, so thank cool. You, thank you for having me. Thank you for having This is really fun to do. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for sticking around the whole time. I know it can be a, a marathon sometimes, but uh, it felt like it was full of full of insight and care about these <laughs> movies, which I always love. Um, so, for Sean, for Greg, for myself, we'd like to remind you to take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and we will see you again in two weeks. Bye!
Stop. Stop. Wow. <laughs> With my feet on my head, my head on the ground. <laughs>